Attention Talking Simpsons listeners, we have a new podcast miniseries exclusively on Patreon right now. For $5 and up subscribers at patreon.com slash talking simpsons, you get Talk King of the Hill Season 2 Part 1. That's right, we're returning to King of the Hill once again putting out 11 new episodes covering the first half of the show's second season. Again, that is patreon.com slash talking simpsons. Be there or be not right. I heartily endorse this event or product. Ahoy hoy everybody and welcome to Talking Simpsons, the podcast that's more twisted than Sinbad's take on marriage. I'm your host, proud Smaperin wearer Bob Mackey, and this is our chronological exploration of The Simpsons, who is here with me today. Hey, it's Henry Gilbert, and I'll only record this podcast if you admit the irony, Bob. And who do we have on the line? Uh, well, I'm Griffin Newman, and Bob Dylan wrote a song to keep me in prison. And today's episode is Pokemon. Which way is Mecca? Because I gotta do a little praying. Uh, Mecca? Well, no, I'm just yanking your chain. <laughs> I'm Jewish. Today's episode aired on January 14th, 2001, and as always, Henry will tell us what happened on this mythical day in real life history. <gasps> oh my god! Oh boy, Bobby, some in Congress are concerned about John Ashcroft's nomination to the Bush administration. Uh, the forgotten film Antitrust is released in theaters, Ooh. and the final episode of the Jamie Foxx show airs. Wow. The, uh, <laughs> the show that, uh, I guess, kind of killed Mission Hill, or it was it was partnered with Mission Hill every week. and uh, There and- were several <laughs> culprits. It was like Murder on the Orient Express kind of mystery. <laughs> Everybody killed Mission Hill. Every WB show stabbed it in a row. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but yes, that John Ashcraft thing, I recall people, if you were on Bush Watch then and starting to be into politics as a youngster like me, I was like, oh, this John Ashcroft guy does sound bad. I'm just learning about him now. Uh, I know he's a monster, but the only thing I can remember about him is uh, him singing that song about eagles. Oh, yes. Ah. <laughs> yes. Uh, the eagle song from the, uh, was that in Fahrenheit 9-11? They I'm sure that? they played a clip of it, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And and they used it in the trailer, too. It was the big hit single from Fahrenheit 9-11, <laughs> uh, the album. Oh, didn't John Ashcroft, he put, he covered the boobs on the Statue of Justice. Wasn't that one of his things? He put the drapes on, like, the Statue of Justice. Yeah, I think his defense of that was it wasn't because he was a prude. It's because he didn't want to be photographed next to a breast and have everyone make the obvious joke, like, this politician's a real boob. <laughs> Uh, that seriously happened. And, uh, and yeah, that film Antitrust completely forgot it existed. Who's even in it? Uh, well, it Tim, Tim Robbins. Yes, Brian Tim Robbins. Philippe, Claire Forlani. Thank I you. I believe that's the top three build. Am I correct about that? Can I, we check that? I think, uh, well, okay, I'll have to wait. I didn't have the wiki open for this. Let me double check this here. Claire yeah. Forlani. My guess is it's, it's Ryan Philippe, Claire Forlani, and Tim Robbins. That's my guess. Tim Robbins sounds like an and, yes. Uh <laughs> Oh, uh, no, Rachel Lee Cook goes above Rachel it Lee Cook. Yeah, it's, uh, yes, but it is an and Tim Robbins. I forgot Ra- uh, Rachel Lee Cook was in it, too. So she's, Rachel Lee Cook's the good girl, and Claire Forlani's the bad girl mm. in it. Is that? Right. Yeah. Right. Yes, that is correct. I'm, I can't believe I forgot Rachel Lee Cook, considering 2001 is probably peak Rachel Lee Cook crush for me. I can't believe I forgot her. I can't believe I didn't see it in theaters. 
no, I never saw it in theaters. I mean, to look back on it now, it's a fun, it is a movie about uh, how Bill Gates is like evil. Oh, right. <laughs> yes. Uh, right. It's Tim Robbins as evil Bill Gates wearing Steve Jobs glasses. Yeah, yeah. I uh, All I remember, I remember the trailer moment of him showing him like a TV screen that's, uh, uh, that's like a painting. And he's like, whoa, it looks real. Hmm. I, I recall that. I don't remember much else from that movie. But this is peak Rachel League. Oh, wait. What's her name again? Rachel League Rachel Crush. Le- yeah, yeah, I thought yeah. so. Uh, peak Crush for all of us because this was her year. It was uh, 2001, and she was also in Josie and the Pussycats, right? Yes. For, for uh, best comedy of the 2000s, yeah. Our friends at Podcast The Ride reminded me of the term 2000 core as a look. And like Josie mm. and the Pussycats is as 2000 core as it gets, look-wise. Yeah, and it's incredible to watch because it makes you realize not just how 2000s core it is, but how specifically the aesthetics of the 2000s before 9-11 were. Mm. Like, I do think there's a very specific window of those 21 months, right? (laughs) Where it's like, because I think culture, like, usually there's bleed over between the end of one decade and the beginning of the next, but I think the Y2K thing, everyone just, like, supercharged the the style to be like, we're post-2000 now, everything needs to look different. Mm -hmm. And there was, like, a very different look from 1999 to 2000, and I think different vibes and music and pop culture and everything. And then 9-11, there's another massive Yeah. Show. And Josie and the Pussycats is like a satire of that moment culturally. So it's heightening <laughs> all of that. It ends up being the best time capsule uh, of the hubris pre-9-11. Uh, but yes, welcome to the show, Griff oh, yeah, Newman. Yeah, a, good, hey. a good thing for me to get into before. <laughs> Talking about 9-11. Our 9-11 yeah. expert for this podcast. Uh, now, Griffin Newman, actor, comedian, and co-host of the Blank Check podcast, which is amazing. Please check that out, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. But yeah, we did an episode on Josie and the Pussycats, which is, uh, yeah, one of my favorite movies of this time period. And a weird thing that there is, I guess this is the following season, I think it happens, but there is an episode that is almost identical. Oh, no, it, it is this season. It's the sync episode. The sync one actually is very similar. Yeah, you're right. It's uh, incredibly similar because it's about the government using the boy band to hide subliminal messages. And it came out, I believe, a month before Josie and the Pussycats. Yeah, it was yeah, that spring. Spring yeah, of 01. Right. And that, that, yeah, it's wild. That spring of that episode, Josie and the Pussycat Shrek, like it's yeah, it's such a different feel. When you tell yourself that's two thousand one, you're like, well, no, two thousand one is nine eleven. That's the right. that's that year. There was a lot of months before but, that. Yeah, but like Shrek for me is another one that is like the ultimate pre nine eleven movie. Like when it when Shrek two comes out three years later and is a massive massive hit, I almost feel like it's people wanting to return to the warmer vibes of pre nine eleven. You know? Oh yeah. Like at that point. Shrek becomes a comfort food, but I'd argue to the end of the earth that Shrek one would not have existed in that form or been as warmly received if it had come out nine months later. No way. If it, it had come out right. Yeah, yeah. it would be. Uh, nobody wanted that post. I mean, I I think about how Fellowship of the Ring was a huge hit after that. I I think it would have succeeded anyway. But like, yeah. didn't we all want to go to this fantasy world where nothing yeah. is like a wink or ironic or remind you of right. anything? Well, and uh, the first movie to really hit big post 9-11 was Monsters, Inc., which is like so sweet and cuddly and is a great movie and is a very funny movie, but I feel like is even cartoonier and warmer than anything Pixar had done up until 
that point. And that's the first one that David Silverman works on too, right? Mm, that's yeah. true, like that's yeah. the first Pixar movie where you kind of have a little Simpsons energy infused into it. You have a lot of Muppets energy infused into it. <laughs> and like, that was the movie where it's like, oh, people are really returned to the box office. And then you have a Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings where it's like ancient evils being <laughs> fought against by like primal good. Everyone wanted to cuddle big blue John Goodman and also Frodo. <laughs> yeah. In 2001. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Little, little hairy boys. <laughs> well, I want to say that Griffin I love your podcast I'm a recent subscriber and I Thank will you. confess something that will make me sound very stupid because in the first year of your podcast everyone was telling me oh this blank check podcast is so great it's so amazing you have to subscribe to it you have to listen to it and for some reason in my head I thought this is just like that Grown Ups 2 podcast in which they yeah. watch the movie blank check every week <laughs> and that that does not make you look stupid. Uh, you would not believe how many people think that. <laughs> or when we tell them the name of the show, immediately ask, is it about that movie? Which is why I think it was our 200th episode, maybe, or our 100th episode. We did, we covered Blank Check just so we could fucking okay. say we did it and never have to do it again. I, I apologize for making the same mistake a lot of people no. do. But now that I think about it, the title for your podcast is, uh, makes total sense. Can you explain it to our audience what it means? <laughs> yeah, it's a, well, it's a term that my father used to use a lot, which was like when someone just had a sort of like culturally defining success right a movie that wins a bunch of oscars becomes a major hit or really taps into the zeitgeist in some kind of way or all of the above that that filmmaker then gets their sort of blank check to do whatever they want my father used to sort of like throw out when when that had happened when someone had a movie like oh my god their next movie is going to be a total blank check and then we would always kind of look on in fascination to see what the person does next because a lot of people think oh that's like the best possible position you can be in where the the stupid execs take their hands off and you finally get to like do whatever you want and very often it ends up being a uh, somewhat disastrous if not completely ruinous experience for filmmakers it is more rare that you get something like Mad Max Fury Road, mm. which in my mind is like the perfect blank check movie in every way. A lot of times you get movies um, that are either like calamitous, like Elizabeth Town, oh. uh, or you get movies that I, I think are sort of uh, misunderstood, like Ang Lee's Hulk, which I love, you know. Mm -hmm. But that's a perfect example of like, you know, that's that's a movie I always throw out as like that's a per that's a, a perfect example of a blank check movie as um, he makes crouching time. Tiger Hidden Dragon, right? Mm -hmm. A a fucking foreign language, like incredibly emotional, spiritual kung fu movie, martial arts film, should I say rather, that makes $120 million and gets nominated for every Oscar, is the highest grossing foreign language film of all time still to this day by like a nautical mile. And everyone is just so perplexed by the fact that, that hits so hard that it's like, I guess you know what you're doing, hands off, do whatever the fuck you want. And they handed him one of the biggest Marvel characters at the last window of time <laughs> where Marvel characters were not the most precious commodity right. in the world that needed to be protected and brand managed to all ends of the earth and just made like an incredibly small psychodrama chamber piece about fathers and children and lasting trauma that happens to have a bright green CGI <laughs> monster. Uh, I feel like that's the last time I want to see Hulk punch tanks again. Like he doesn't get to... I, this well, now the tanks like, are on our side, Henry. I know. I uh, Hulk loves tanks. He just wants to <laughs> hug them. He's the the military's great. Yeah, Henry. 
I'm so happy you said that because <laughs> along with all the other things I like about the Hulk movie, which are the things that make it so unsuperhero movie-like, I do contend that Ang Lee's Hulk, even if you remove the stuff that alienates a lot of people, has some of the best pure Hulk action ever committed to film. Hmm. And I think people lose track of that because they're like, I don't want to watch 90 minutes of the guy arguing with his dad, right? Which I love. <laughs> That's like catnip to me. But I also think the stuff with just the Hulk in the desert fighting tanks and stuff is so goddamn good. I think the Hulk's performance in that is good. The secret of that movie is that Ang Lee did all the motion capture himself. Mm. And I do think people dislike how cartoony the Hulk looks, which I think was very much a stylistic choice in addition to being like just the style, the, the, the level of effects at the time. But I just think they get the spirit of just like angry, raging Hulk right. And and watching him crush stuff is fun in that movie. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I feel like blank checks aren't getting written as much to directors these mm -hmm. days. I I wonder. No. I I do wonder if like I was trying to think of like who is getting written a blank check now. I feel like Bong Joon Ho maybe will get it. But yeah, he already yeah, had Snowpiercer, right? Like that would I would feel like that counts as a blank check. Almost. I, I would argue, I mean, we consider him someone who already, like Snowpiercer and Okja in particular, I think is very much a blank check movie. Both of those are Parasite's obviously smaller. Whatever he does next has the potential to be a humongous blank check movie. But I also feel like he's the kind of guy, he's talked about how he's working on two scripts at the same time. Mm -hmm. And one of them sounds a lot smaller, which is sometimes strategically the smartest thing directors can do after the huge movie is like make the tiny thing, hold on to your check and wait to really spend it rather than rushing into the big thing. Because a lot of people blow their capital in that way. But yeah, no, it's a thing we bemoan a lot is that so often it's like the people who have the blank check movie, they then just do four other franchises, right? Mm -hmm. Like they either stay in their franchise that they've already had the success with, or they just jump from one to another and do a bunch of sequels to other things or adaptations of other things. Jordan Peele's a guy who I think is absolutely at blank check status, but I think he's been very smart about the fact that he turned down all those franchise movies and is like what i want to do is know that i have like blank check freedom by mm. only doing thrillers that cost 20 million dollars mm. approximately he can make whatever the fuck he wants within his budget range now. i guess the russo's cherry was a blank check movie that and i think that one did bounce baby <laughs> it did it did and it, there's an argument there that if that was their blank check movie do the russo's actually have anything they're dying to express mm. you know like that's what's interesting to me is i feel like a, a lot of times blank check movies what i find fascinating about them are just like it's the thing that the filmmaker was too embarrassed or never felt the courage to put out there until they were so widely accepted for their last thing that they're like now i think i can pull this off and cherry just feels like the russo brothers being like this is the kind of indie movie they probably liked when they were in film school hmm. you know like this is them being really influenced by train spotting in the early 90s and going man i'd love to make a movie like train spotting and 20 years later making a movie like train spotting <laughs> yes. but it just it feels like a weird pastiche thing to me rather than like god this one really hits close to home for us this is really the thing we wish we could always make you know mm-hmm mm -hmm. Taika Waititi is yeah. someone who's in a blank check stage right now. I mean, there are a lot of people. Jojo Rabbit's very much a blank check movie. Oh, yeah. Um, but he's he's doing it smartly where he's cushioning it 
in between Marvel movies. Yeah. Whereas someone like Ryan Coogler, it's like, what's the blank check he does after Black Panther? Black Panther 2. What does Patty Jenkins do after Wonder Woman? Wonder Woman 1984. That's certainly a blank check. <laughs> I feel like Black Panther 2 might be a blank check, but it's also a blank check within the, say, franchise silo. Yeah. Well, cool. the uh, the big guest star on this episode made a name for himself in blank check movies. Yes, yes. And is, I, I will say this, is the reason I picked this episode, my favorite living actor. Oh, cool. He, yeah, he's he, great. Is, he is my guy. I have right here right next to my computer monitor i have a life cast of michael keaton's face wow that was <laughs> gifted to me that's um, amazing <laughs> but i have at my my desk uh but yes yes very much we've covered him a lot especially because we did tim burton on the show and and he's my favorite kind of like he's almost like a blank check actor to me because <laughs> he is so odd and specific in so many ways that it is bizarre that he ever became as big a movie star as he did. And especially because the breakthrough performances for him were all very unconventional. It's not like he had his major success by flattening out his weirdness, you know? And this episode comes in sort of the fallow period of his career, uh, which is one of the reasons this episode sticks in my mind so much, because I remember being so excited as a kid or, you know, a, a tween or whatever, that he was doing anything, let alone appearing on my favorite TV show. And then now he's recreated himself as like the ultimate prestige actor. <laughs> and also yeah. like, oh, give him $2 million and he'll be the villain or the supporting part in your big movie and nail it. You he, know, he really was in a slump at this point in his career. I was looking at his uh, his filmography and he was doing things like Jack Frost and White Noise, yeah. and it wasn't until Cars, the Pixar movie, that he had a big right. movie. But even then, you're like, he's the villain in Cars, right? That movie is very much advertised as, look, it's Paul Newman and Owen Wilson in a Pixar movie, right? Like, yeah. here's one of the biggest comedy stars of today and one of the most legendary movie stars alive. And people were sort of like, Who's, whose voice is that? <laughs> you know? And, and then they bring him back for Toy Story 3 a couple years later. And it sort of felt like, oh, maybe like Keaton will be like a new John Ratzenberger. Pixar will use him a lot. That will make me happy. You know, but like that same year he does the other guys and he's great in that. But I was like expecting like, oh, this is going to lead to a renaissance of all these guys who grew up with Michael Keaton, putting him in like the elder statesman role in their comedies. And then that didn't happen. And then, uh, you know, it, it Birdman, it just suddenly everyone overnight was like, oh, right. Welcome back. Yeah, <laughs> we forgot yeah. about you. Yeah. I Yeah. Keaton, he I, I always forget that he had this, you know, he, ca he came from comedy, but that's so evident in this episode like they give they give they they do for him in this episode what they pretty much only do for albert brooks of like hey yes. just riff and well animated if it's good like yeah that that's what i find interesting about this episode like in a lot of ways for me this episode feels very emblematic of this exact point in the show season 12 and that it's sort of the season 12 version of like a season four concept Mm. Not just in its plotline and its subject matter, but also in its guest star, both in terms of who they cast, how they use him, how they allow him to retain some authorship over his role, and the way the guest star character is built and the episode is constructed around. It does feel like an Albert Brooks episode or like a Lisa's substitute or something like that. But you're at this midpoint where it it lacks the certain emotionality, you know, and, and the actual story specificity of something like Lisa Substitute, but also the version of this episode in uh, season 32 has 
none of that would just be <laughs> joke machine this is still sort of like between the two pillars you know well in this in this era like they are doing more of i mean tannis the menace i think is a couple episodes after this where yeah. every guest star is playing themselves so yeah. having michael keaton play a character yeah. uh that feels like a throwback even in tw in the season 12 you know yeah right because there are two things that start to happen that bum me out on the show and i guess we can also after this get into sort of my bigger relationship with the simpsons but uh one is guest stars literally playing themselves all the time right which just becomes more and more of a thing whether it's the episodes constructed around it or just 15 pop-in appearances of the style of, of bruce valanche in this episode right <laughs> like hey, bring in like six people for one-line jokes and caricaturing them as themselves and then the second thing that happens is like i forget where the episode is but there's one around this time period where Ben Stiller plays a character who is not Ben Stiller, but looks like Ben Stiller and is very much trafficking in the Ben Stiller comedy archetype of this time, right? Yeah, there'd uh, be a Ricky Gervais episode like that. That's about, the ultimate example. Yeah. I was going to say, that's when you've gone completely beyond the pale. That's when I feel like that then becomes the, to a certain degree, the mold for the special episodes from there on out where it's like you bring in someone as a guest writer and or you build an episode around their comedic persona it looks like them they ostensibly play themselves with a different name they do their bit and the whole show warps around their thing yeah. right yeah though i mean they in season eight they the one with rodney dangerfield is yeah. great but that also that at least feels like a tribute to a different era instead of like yeah. lifting up a currently famous person and it's also that almost becomes closer to the use of jackie mason or devito or something where it's like you're both cashing in on everything we like about that known performer who is so recognizable but you're also really weaving them into the emotional texture of the show right you're connecting if the characters were closest to this feels like one of the episodes from this era where they sort of set it up like that classic perfect kind of simpsons guest star and it, it's so close and it, it isn't like a classic episode i think it falls short in a number of ways but it's one of the times where they almost have all the pieces right i'm sure this is a thing you guys are reckoning with constantly that like season 12 has to be viewed now objectively as still early simpsons yes even though in most people's eyes it's like oh that's over the hump simpsons you know yeah revisiting these i'm finding myself liking 12 a lot more because i feel like after all of the uh the lows of 11 there are several polarizing episodes in 11 i think we were all just conditioned yeah. to hate everything that was coming at us when it was new in the year yeah. 2000 and now i'm watching these and i know there's not as emotional of a connection between me and this episode but i think there are so many times i laughed out loud and that still yeah. is is a credit to the show being very funny it just they're not as interested in the emotional aspect anymore and that's fine but i i'm enjoying 12 a lot i have to say <laughs> and i know this I, one was yeah. hated online in the year 2001 when it was live well yeah you know i i think 12 is a real uptick season on a relative scale but you do start to see that thing where like you know what like consensus is like six seven eight is kind of like the peak run in most people's eyes where the mm. simpsons has found this perfect balance between like joke density intelligence depth of characters breadth of story and also still retaining emotionality right and then i feel like nine you feel the shift 
when I was a kid watching the show, I'd be like, what are you talking, the show's always good. You know, what are you mm-hmm. talking about? It hasn't been good since season 10 or whatever. And like nine, you feel a shift, 10, you feel a shift, 11, you feel a real shift. And then 12 is an uptick, but it's an uptick to like, back how nine felt you know it's like that weird thing where it's like it's an uptick back to the beginning of the decline and then i feel like from there on out it's like weird you know peaks and valleys you definitely do find seasons that are better than others i i i will say so i in quarantine about six months ago maybe i've lost all track of time i guess maybe nine months ago over the (laughs) summer of 2020 i was like i think i'm gonna try to watch every episode of the simpsons if i don't do it now when am i ever going to have seen every episode of the simpsons i don't host a podcast about it right (laughs) um i i got up to season 23 i think Hmm. and then felt like i need to take a break i got to season 23 very fast like i think i did seasons one through 23 in four months or something like that four or five months and i was just watching it all day every day pretty much uh just very depressed not leaving my house (laughs) i live alone and simpsons just kind of came my like my yellow noise running in the background to just sort of keep me relatively sane and there was like a warm bath quality to just like oh the predictability and the repetition of the show in later seasons became weirdly comforting to me and then i just sort of felt like a i kind of maxed out on it i need to take a break i want to watch some other things and b i got really stressed out at the prospect of finishing it before i was vaccinated like (laughs) back in november or whatever i was like if i fucking finish the show and then still have six months where i'm locked up in my apartment i'm gonna lose my mind that i've been doing this so long i watched all of the simpsons and had time to spare, right? Yeah, so you... then I stepped away and I haven't really come back to it. And you guys asked me to be on the show. When you previously asked me over the summer, it was when I was in the midst of, of watching it, but also was real uh, heavy period of blank check and stuff and feeling really burnt out. And we're on like a little hiatus from recording right now. You asked me again, Henry, it was like perfect timing, but it also right. is interesting because it's like, I'm a couple months out from a couple months of like pure Simpsons immersion where I was watching almost nothing but and thinking about The Simpsons all day, every day. (laughs) The Simpsons will be right back. I think, what was that? A Butterfinger, Grandpa. Well, stop it. Okay. I can't stop it! I did! Oh, darn osteoporosis. Bite my Butterfinger. From Nestle. We hope you guys are enjoying this podcast with Puma Pride. And a big thank you to our guest, Griffin Newman. Me and Bob are big fans of all his work, his podcast, Blank Check, is a real favorite of ours. And we were so happy to have him on this extra large episode of Talking Simpsons. And you know, if you enjoyed this podcast, you should know that Talking Simpsons is brought to you by the support of amazing subscribers at patreon.com slash talking simpsons. For five bucks a month, those folks know that me and Bob are able to do this as our full-time jobs, and they also get so many extras. You could hear next week's Talking Simpsons 
right now. You get it a week early and ad-free. And also, you get tons of exclusive. There are over a 100 bonus exclusive podcasts of me and Bob covering every episode of Mission Hill, every episode of The Critic, the first season of King of the Hill, half the second season of King of the Hill, the first two seasons of Futurama, and we're about halfway through season three of Futurama. All in the Talking Simpsons style, but you can only hear that if you are a $5 and up subscriber at patreon.com slash talking simpsons plus a huge back catalog of original interviews with literally dozens of people who have worked on the simpsons some as early as day one sign up at that five dollar level at patreon.com slash talking simpsons to experience all that cool stuff If you want something as nice as a Smokron, you should sign up at the premium level at patreon.com slash talking simpsons. You get all that $5 stuff I just discussed, but you also get our premium $10 a month podcast, What a Cartoon Movie. Each month we cover an animated feature film, hyper in-depth, just like we do an episode of The Simpsons, often for over four hours, five hours long one time. You see, on our sister podcast, What a Cartoon, we cover animated series just like The Simpsons. And for the movies, each month we go super in-depth into films. Like this month, you can hear us talk about Disney's Hunchback of Notre Dame. The month before that, Disney's Hercules. And before that, almost three years worth of films as diverse as End of Evangelion to a goofy movie to Spider-Man Into the spider and so many more a gigantic back catalog over 140 hours of exclusive podcasts at that ten dollar level plus all the five dollar things i just said please sign up today at patreon.com slash talking simpsons to hear it all One, and I mean, you are similarly aged to us in that, you, so you probably yeah. grew up with, with Simpsons, and I mean, I I guess you probably weren't watching it like the very first seasons, but was it like syndication when you super got into it? Yeah, so I'm, I'm 32, I'm the exact age of The Simpsons, but I am the oldest of three kids, and my mother was uh, super overprotective about movies and television in particular. And especially because the 90s were sort of the rise of both the adult primetime cartoon in the wake of The Simpsons, but also the post-Nicktoons sort of like more edge cartoon, mm. and also just a lot of uh, fighting shows. I know Power <laughs> Rangers was live action, but the X-Men cartoon, all the superhero cartoons. My mother just like didn't want me watching anything that she thought was violent or sarcastic. Uh, sarcastic <laughs> was the other word she used. And Simpsons definitely fell into the sarcastic silo. Hmm. Also falling into the sarcastic silo, Rugrats, showing that my mother did not really have an understanding of what any of these shows were. Wow. But I was forbidden from watching most things that my generation was watching. So I was like a weird kid who almost exclusively watched Looney Tunes and The Muppet Show, which were both allowed because they were older and they were quote unquote classics, but they're so cynical and so violent, both yeah. those shows. I mean, like, but you know, Muppet Show obviously has a lot of sincerity to it as well, but there's like a lot of cynicism to it. And that's a show where sketches end with Crazy Harry blowing up stuff. And like, I mean, it, it, fucking Looney Tunes is like Bugs Bunny tricking a hunter into shooting himself in the face 
face and then saying, ain't I a stinker? <laughs> like, it's like, I, I, it's so weird that, like, she was trying to block me from those things. And instead, I just only, like, Bugs Bunny became my model for all behavior in the world. There was very but, little gunplay uh, on Rugrats, yeah, I have to say, true. as a viewer. Right, that's. That's the thing. I remember, I guess maybe I was, I like seven or eight, I asked my mother for my birthday if I could watch one episode of Rugrats because I knew <laughs> this is a show about babies. If she watches it, she'll realize she didn't know what she was talking about and she lumped Rugrats in with Ren and Stimpy. So I like did that for my birthday and then she watched Rugrats with me and was like, oh, this is a show about babies. And then I was allowed to watch it again. But that very much began the period of me sort of like trying to filibuster my way into getting each of these pieces of media allowed. And I feel like Simpsons, I finally broke that wall a year or two later. So like I started watching The Simpsons probably 1999. Hmm, okay. um, so I started watching it right at the time that older Gen X people were saying, oh, The Simpsons isn't good anymore, right? It's fallen off. But I was simultaneously watching new live episodes and watching syndication obsessively like i would watch the two back-to-back -back episodes on fox 5 6 and 6 30 because i was like i need to catch up everyone else is 10 years ahead of me on <laughs> i need to catch the fuck up so like i'm watching two episodes a day plus the new episode every week in 1999 2001 2001 the dvd box sets come out and then i feel like oh two oh three we have like bad dial-up internet and my main activity <laughs> at night is going on like limewire or kazaa and trying to download episodes that i haven't seen because hmm. i have that simpsons guide you know that, oh yes um, the big old episode guide amazing colossal right. no i'm thinking of mystery science Theater yeah. with that sorry but yeah the complete right episode. it was the first volume yes yeah. i i and in the back of that there was a notes page and i literally wrote down <laughs> every episode i hadn't seen so i could cross them off the list when dvd box sets came out or um I, I found someone who was seeding, uh, you know, barbershop quartet or whatever. So finally, <laughs> I can see it and make these references, make these jokes. But so I was, I was way into The Simpsons. It kind of became my my biggest pop culture obsession for a couple of years there. And I do feel like, despite the fact that it, the public perception was that the show was kind of declining at that point, or at least was over its absolute golden age that there was a little bit of like a resurgence just in terms of cultural prominence for the show i think probably tied to like the 10th anniversary mm -hmm. but there was yeah. also a lot of merchandise again and i was very into collecting the simpsons action figures of that time yeah so we we charted that one it was when they hit the 200th episode uh yeah. we we looked up i i went through the variety archives and it was like literally these announcements of we signed it the the fox team has signed a new deal with the merchandise so new right it was them finally figuring out how to sell simpsons things outside of the lens of bart mania yeah after about right. 1993 right. it was very hard to find any merch anywhere outside of like a few random things but once you hit 2000 2001 that's when the playmates figures start coming out that's when there's just right. all this new merch in every store right. and i'm like a big merch dude uh, I love merch and the history of merch and shit. But um, especially at that day, I was very swayed by merchandise. Like I was such a comic book store culture kid that having that much merchandise on the shelves again is probably one of the main things that drove me to be like, mom, you need to let me watch this now. I'm out of touch with, with all this stuff on shelves. And I was like so all in 
on that uh, on that playmates line. I mean, my bedroom was like increasingly dominated by an entire corner of the room that was all the play sets and the figures. So I was just like so in it at that point in time. But yeah, I, it, there is that weird thing where it was like Simpsons was such a merchandising bonanza for like a year or two after it premiered with all the Bart stuff, which then gave way to all the bootleg Bart stuff. And then gave way to like the bottom falling out on the merch, overproduction, being treated like, oh, that was a fad. And now they're on to the next thing. Right. Yeah. And then there was suddenly like a surplus of heavily discounted Simpsons merchandise. And then late 90s, early 2000s is like 10th anniversary. They've reframed it. The merch is different. It's not so Bart focused anymore. It's more to sort of adults and going deeper into the character catalog. And that was a big thing that got me I think deeply into the show and made me feel like I could be all in on it in a way like like a Star Wars obsession where it's mm. like oh well now there are like things to catalog there are this many episodes you can learn all the references you can have all the figures you know yeah there's such a like depth to the world and things to collect and message boards and all that sort of shit was like perfectly cresting at the moment that I got into the show and was all all about it I'm just thinking about that giant Simpsons poster the very iconic one with almost every character at the time seeing that in maybe 97 yeah. or 98 and thinking i can name everybody on that and yeah. i have not wasted my life yes yeah <laughs> right and i very much was like a kid coming to the table a couple years later and was like i need to learn how to name everyone on that poster you know like i was like very aware of the fact that i wanted to be someone who knew every character on the simpsons yeah it, uh, they they learned i think too like suncoast hot topic those things yeah. were existing to sell sell simpsons yeah. things to a uh, larger audience maybe we can thank south park for oh, creating yeah. that kind of demographic to sell things to i suppose i think that was a part of it but i also think part of it was like you're now selling borderline nostalgic merchandise to the kids who grew up with the simpsons right so it's like if you were bart's age when the show premiered in 89 then by 1999 you are a college student you know where if you see that poster, you're like, oh, fuck, yeah, Simpsons. Yeah, I'll put that on my wall, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, I, I feel like it was like suddenly they were selling the slightly more adult merch for the people who had originally bought the Eat My Shirts, shorts, shirts. Uh, all the uh, blue shirt Bart merchandise, which this episode makes a good, such a good joke about. That's a great joke. Yeah, I love yes. that joke. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I guess we should start our, our episode discussion now, yeah. though. Uh, so, uh, well, first off, the, the chalkboard gag is a reference to Who Let the Dogs Out? Just to let you know, it's in 2001. Uh, now it's our second episode of 2001 that song it's not about dogs correct it's about ugly women is that the uh the truth of that song oh, no it's I like when really. the club is, is full of really i think I, people think it's like oh it's a fun dog song but i think uh, the intent of the song is like there's a bunch of ugly women in the club and then when that happens you sing who let the dogs oh, out jeez i only know the most recent time i listened to that song all the way through was playing the children's version of it in just dance during my morning exercise <laughs> and and in that wow. it's very much about dogs and literal canines yeah. oh I was gonna say because it's like it's it's sort of like a classic reggaeton song but the Baja Men cover of it was specifically for Rugrats and Paris the movie so it's used in the movie in a montage where Spike the dog gets loose and runs around Paris oh. and the music video is also intercut with the Baja Men and the dogs being let out in Paris. Like, it's used very literally. That reminds uh, me of how the uh, the song All Star, the music video is for Mystery yes. Men, and it involves Mystery right. Men characters, but everyone associates <laughs> yeah. that music with Shrek. Mm -hmm. Right, right. But the music video is 
intercut with scenes from mystery men the the first person who talks in that music video dane cook he's the waffle yeah. man yep waffle <laughs> oh god uh then we get a quick vincent price uh couch gag which they clearly they're like oh this has mouth movements we need to have sound on this one it's not they don't always do sound on a couch gag but then start of the day for homer he is refusing to wake up in this first clip where marge she wants to do something for her my juice box! Oh. Sorry, homie, but you promised to take me to the apron expo today. Just give me ten more hours. Come on! You and the kids always want to do fun stuff, but today we're doing something I like. Uh... They're unveiling a combination apron smock. It's called a smapron. Did you say smock run? No, smapron. Oh. <laughs> Come on, it'll be fun! Man, that was a good apron expo. I'm going to wear my apron on the 4th of July. And this lead apron will keep me safe downstairs. <laughs> Grill power. I'm a little disappointed. There were too many aprons. Huh. It was great, all right. <laughs> I mean, to set the tone for what this Scully era is about, it's a uh, part of it is Marge is the most boring character and everyone. And to the point that here Marge is like, everybody likes to do fun stuff, but I want to do things that I like that aren't fun. Right. That she self identifies as someone who likes unfun things. Mm. I mean, I do. I like that game with Marge for this run and, and watching so much of the Simpsons over last summer, I sort of, forgot how much a cornerstone of Marge's character is making bad jokes and things that she finds funny that no one else finds <laughs> funny. You know, like things that she finds infinitely amusing, which, you know, there is this sweet kind of running arc across the entire run of The Simpsons, you know, that I they start to lose the thread a little bit because then I think some of the jokes start to feel a little mean and judgmental of Marge the deeper you go on. But at this period, I still think they're on the right side of it, which is like Marge was this incredibly sad, lonely girl, right? Who kind of always had mom interests and never had anyone to relate to. <laughs> and and this dream that she talks about, like in several episodes, she directly invokes that her dream was to have a daughter so she could finally have a friend. That she wants Lisa to be her friend. And Lisa is also kind of more sophisticated than her. That she finds a lot of the stuff that Marge likes kind of lame or retrograde. Mm. And that Marge is often left alone on this island just being <laughs> like, won't anyone else get excited about aprons? So my favorite <laughs> joke in this entire episode is just the reversal of marge being disappointed because there were too many aprons too many. even she can't uh, be happy there <laughs> yeah. I, I have no deeper right. insight into this but i really love homer uh being really excited about smokeron but not ex excited about smaprons yeah <laughs> right. and right. It, it's a fun curveball in that you think this first act set piece will be they'll go to the apron convention and then find the plot there but no you smash cut from them going to them coming back yes right right and a, a perfect joke of just like Everyone else had a great time despite all expectations and Marge just thought it was too much. Like it was too ostentatious, the amount of aprons, you know? <laughs> uh, for an apron expo that I, yeah. Uh, and I'll, yeah, I like that Smokron joke too because it feels like a joke about 
a pitch winning that Smaperin won in the room, and they're like, well, yeah. my Smokron was better. We should have used that. It uh, also feels like a good Homer internal logic joke where it's not just this guy's so fucking dumb, which I think sometimes the show gets wrong as it goes on. It's like his brain is just on a different wavelength. Like, <laughs> as you sort of said, like the unexplained, what is the difference in his mind? And why was he so excited about one and not about the yeah. other? You know? <laughs> and visually, they cut even closer on his face just for the word Smokron. Yes, yeah. yeah. I, I also just love the joke of the juice box that explodes. Like, they get uh, one of those Scully gets his uh he was really into getting away with the most horrifying visuals and finding yeah. a way around it and that seemingly homer is crushed it even if that broke his juice box he is still bent in a way his body cannot which for an episode about back problems it it kind of uh foreshadows what will happen to homer later there's a lot of funny buttons in this episode and uh the bet has two functions full of power sorry max power and full reverse yes, only, yes. no other dial or anything that opening gag is an example for me of one of those jokes where I go like, ah, fuck, is that funny short term, but really damaging big picture, right? Like if you get to the point where within a gag, Homer's back can be broken and he can bleed out and recover from it, <laughs> then what is the show anymore, right? Yeah. And instead it's like, no, this is the double reverse joke of, as you said, he is doing something that no one could survive, but the blood is a misdirect from the juice box, which is a different type of Homer joke about why does he have a juice box in bed, right? It's, I do feel yeah. like like by season 17, they do this type of gag and it's actually just blood. Well, you know, they start to get to a point where the joke becomes like Looney Tunes levels of violence, including gore and stuff that are just recovered from. Well, well just a dozen episodes before this Homer... The badger tears Homer's guts yeah. out. Like his, Okay, I was yes. trying to remember yeah. <laughs> where that was in the timeline. That's the perfect example for me. I thought that was later than this, but that's the one for me where I went, fuck, you've crossed the line now you can't come back from. Like, that is just too disgusting and also too unrealistic where, like, he never recovers from that in the same way. Yeah. You know? He yeah. never physically would recover. He never psychologically would recover. No one who saw that would ever psychologically recover. <laughs> he just says, what am I, a doctor? Yeah. I I, I will say, Griffin, uh, you're meeting me and Bob on the other side of this tunnel of just yeah. having to accept that, like, the show has thrown away reality. And they're like... The the only I, I know. The, the only way to appreciate the show I, I've come to like these episodes more when I just say like well obviously the internal logic of the reality of this family is meaningless so I should just appreciate Scully and team's ability to make jokes like that's that's really I, I want to be very clear that is the exact way I appreciate these episodes as well but <laughs> it still bums me out it oh, is yeah. like oh, for sure a key kind of distinction for me it's two-pronged it's that it's like jokes that fundamentally break the reality in a way that i have to think about too much right even if i just go like well shrug it still lingers in my mind like that image of the badger pulling at his <laughs> intestines is is burned in there in a way i resent right and i can't help but watching that start to think of the implications of 
what if that were to happen in real life, right? So as hard as I try to just shrug and accept it as a joke, it, it stays with me to a mm. bad degree. And then the other part of it is just the, the emotionality, that the show stops being able to balance the two. Part of it is the jokes go so far in that direction that it's hard to then accept the show telling a very small, intimate story. It feels out of sync with that. And the second part of it is I think they just start becoming so obsessed with joke density, which I do think the Sully run at least has a much stronger joke ratio, like hit hit to miss success rate, right? Yeah, yeah. But yeah. I, I, I like I think this is the best era of just pure joke machine for the show. But I do miss when you could have like an episode like um summer of four foot two you know or lisa's up to i mean my favorite episodes tend to be lisa episodes mm -hmm. i think because lisa is the most sincere character and is sort of the moral compass of the simpsons well, that's and what, lisa is like suffocated in these seasons yeah like we yeah. Well, i created yes. this uh i have no reason to play this episode other than this moment here but i created a jingle for how many times they shit on lisa in these seasons right, i'll play it now Take that, Lisa's beliefs. <laughs> <laughs> well, Griffin, uh, we were talking about this on some recent episodes and over the past couple of seasons we've been covering, but uh, what something that we shouldn't ignore is uh, how big South Park was and how envious they were of South Park's success mm -hmm. and popularity and just mm -hmm. it being the hot new show. And I think that's, that's why these episodes are a little crueler, a little less yeah. about emotions, because South Park was just like, fuck all of that. Everyone is a hypocrite. Everyone is wrong. The world is, we're all just going to hell. Let's just make fun of it. <laughs> and that's why at the end right. of this episode, it's like, no, the prisoner was not, uh, you know, had a heart of gold. He was, a, he was an evil liar yeah. and he will hurt and kill people and you shouldn't listen to him. And there's no, there's nothing to be found like no uh no moral to be found in this episode at all no and i do feel like a kind of classic simpsons guest appearance or like you know peripheral character based episode is like the simpsons meet someone who kind of changed their worldview and then can't stay with them right like you're bleeding gums murphy you're mr nerdstrom right like mm -hmm. Any of these characters, I mean, on the flip side of it, you have someone like, you know, an antagonistic character like Hank Scorpio or uh, why am I forgetting his uh, name? Grimey? Uh, Grimes. Mm. Grimes, I was going to say. Who did you say? Oh, I said Grimey. It's his <laughs> nickname he yeah. preferred to be yeah. called. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. Like, you know, but but an episode that sort of like makes them question themselves or their dynamic or something. And I like those episodes because they, for me, are able to have their cake and eat it too, where it's like this encounter, this episode, this relationship was impactful for these characters in a show with little to no continuity. But because they leave, it doesn't feel like the show is ignoring them at the end of the episode, right? Like versus, what's her name? The next door neighbor uh, from like Marge oh, on Powell. the Lamb. Powell. Ruth Powers. Yeah. Right. Power. Right, like, I love Ruth Powers, but it's sort of annoying that it's like, oh, she has this episode that's so impactful, then she just kind of disappears, even though she's ostensibly next door, and then she comes back, has another spotlight episode, like, two seasons later, yeah. and then just disappears again. Like, she's just ostensibly there, but no longer affecting them. Versus something like Bleeding Gums, you know, where it's just like, this guy was never going to be her best friend, you know? And I think it's good that they killed off Bleeding Gums <laughs> because it's like, well, he can last more emotionally in the show as sort of like a memory, you know? It, this feels like a setup for that type of guest star character, you know? That like Marge forming this relationship with this convict 
can really kind of change her in some way. He can go back to jail at the end of the episode or go back on the run at the end of the episode and still stay with Marge. And he never has to be invoked again. But as a hardcore Simpsons fan, you can kind of hold it in your back pocket and tell yourself like, yeah, but she doesn't forget him. Like he's mm. still there somewhere in her mind. He's he's impacted her life. But instead they do this kind of crappy. Um, I, I know we have more in the episode to go. Yeah. Oh, yeah. to the end. But they do this crappy sort of like, you know, for me, sellout ending of just like, well, it turns out he like kind of sucked and he's like a yeah. lunatic. And he just goes back off to jail and the whole thing's treated like, well, what a silly mistake. Marge m- misread this guy. You <laughs> the, know? the show punishes Marge for opening up her heart and trusting someone. And her last words are, get him out of here. Yes. Yeah. Right, right. Which I feel like he can be, how do I put this? I think he can end the episode committing another crime and going back to jail without it being like this guy fucking sucks you know (laughs) being like he's crazy and he lied to marge and she resents the fact that she ever even reached out to him because there is something so sweet to the heart of this episode being marge taking to the fact that this person in this prison has such a sensitive soul and that they need to be uh nurtured in some kind of way well, we've heard Scully talk before about how uh, he regrets not going for emotion as much as he could. That, like, mm-hmm. on he cut some scenes from the uh, the Maud's death episode because they're like, ah, this is a little too touchy feely. Like, one of my least up. favorite episodes. Oh yeah. yes, oh yeah, we were with yeah. there. I, uh, but I it's guess so bad. Uh, so the next scene begins, though, and Homer stops at a prison rodeo today. <laughs> uh, and I will say this is based on real life. There are uh, there are real prison rodeos. There haven't been any in the last year, I think, because of all that stuff. But I think this is a reference to uh, America's oldest prison rodeo that's been going on since 1964, the Angola Prison Rodeo. And let me just say, it's incredibly depressing to research uh, prison <laughs> rodeos, and it is uh, full of horrible history. Like, for example, Angola Prison is named that way because that was the name of the slave plantation it replaced after the Ouch. Civil War. And it's uh, it's just a farm for uh, cheap labor to sell a whole bunch of uh, farming goods. So, yeah, it's uh, depressing. <laughs> Now, may, may I circle back to Lisa for a second here? Sure, Especially sure. since you played the bumper. I yes. feel like it, it's worth bringing up here. Lisa, very much over time as I've gotten older and, and re-watching the show, is, is now inarguably my favorite character, right? And not only that, I think fundamentally at its best, in its sort of glory run, the first eight or nine seasons or so, The Simpsons is kind of a show about Lisa. Because there's obviously the recent thing where Ted Cruz was like, the Republican Party is the party of Barton Homer and Democrats are Marge and Lisa. This idea of using Lisa as like a slam I feel like there was a similar thing uh, uh, accusing uh, Kamala Harris of sounding like Marge. And there was some other thing culture than last year I'm forgetting where someone was called Lisa Simpson. Oh, Liz Warren. Like an insult. Thing. Right, right. Liz this Warren, idea yeah. of just like, oh, we all agree that Lisa's the annoying character, right? From like the worst fucking people. And uh, I, I feel like if that's your takeaway from The Simpsons, you are so fundamentally miswatching the show because like everyone who grew up to create the Simpsons was a Lisa, right? Like by and large. And I think when the show starts to slip 
it's less Lisa-like people taking over the influence of the show <laughs> to some degree, right? Yeah. I, I do think it's like, I mean, especially if you look at like, The Simpsons was notorious for being like this, like Tony, Harvard Lampoon, writer's room kind of thing, right? Yeah. Most of these people are closest to Lisa of any of these characters. And Lisa really is the moral compass of the show, right? It's, it's, you know, by and large, a pretty lefty show, especially when you look at, like, Matt Groening's roots, you know? Uh, can't speak to, you know, him now, but, you know, him being this sort of, like, crunchy Portland, uh, you know, a cartoonist. At the time, you look at the show's attitude towards police, you know, towards capitalism, towards all these things, and Lisa is the one who seems most reflective of the show's sensibilities and also tends to be the key for the most emotional episodes on the show it's lisa learning tough lessons about how the world works right or making small victories uh, at, a, at a price or something it feels incredibly strange and telling of the ship the show goes through at this time that lisa not only has almost nothing to do in this episode <laughs> which in and of itself feels like a mistake but an episode that is a kind of about prison reform right yeah like this episode is about like this is bad for the human spirit to keep people locked up you need to believe that there's like a better pathway and marge having her bluff called on this idea by having to live with the guy it is weird that lisa has almost nothing to say in this episode her most prominent role in this episode is to be used as a flag <laughs> to lure a bull yeah and you're just true. like I, it, it's not that i dislike the chiropractic plot line that's fine but it also feels like in season seven the b plot of this episode would have been lisa becomes more politically activated by the prisoner right yeah i think so and i, I don't think mike skelly was as lisa minded as other writers because he was a working yeah. class guy he's a college dropout right. he would go on to immediately work for sitcoms like he was he, his first job was writing for yakov smirnoff sitcom he so, right. created a sitcom with mel gibson not too yeah. long after this we and i'll just say again we, we love mike scully. mike scully he's one of the nicest guys fan. we've ever talked I'm to a yeah, fan. but yeah but i i, yeah. I am a fan i like this era but but I mean, he's also talked about that he was sort of the guy who came in and was like, I wasn't a huge fan of the show before. I'm just here to write the funniest episode I can. I don't really care about the things that have been pre-established, right? Am I getting that right? Well, Ian Maxim yeah. Graham, who he was a oh, big part yes. of this type. Sorry, he was, he's the biggest one of that. Yes, yeah, I'm but, sorry. Yes. Uh, but, well, in later in the episode, Lisa, I think she does say like, Mom, aren't you worried? Like, she kind of indicates like, you should be afraid to take a chance on a, a prisoner, to be around prisoners, which is such a far cry from Melissa, yeah. who was who was telling Marge, like, aren't the police just uh, meant <laughs> to protect property, not people? Like, it's, it's so far away from it. Right, like, it almost feels like part of this episode should be Lisa is the one who is the most adamant that we should not vilify convicts. And at the end, when he backslides, that she should be the one most hurt by it you know yeah but uh, <laughs> they they got no time for her feelings in this i one. think it was yeah. like we have a marge a story we need a homer violent b story yes. to keep everyone entertained yeah. <laughs> but i do i will say i also like marge a stories especially when they're based around um uh, guest star characters like this because the, the loneliness of marge is a really strong through line over the course of the show for me i like episodes where marge makes 
a friend for one week where she feels some kind of kinship and intimacy with a person who then can't stay you know i do think back to that great line she said when she's trying to force bart to be friends with ralph when she talks to ralph and says like i used to play by myself all the time too Uh like that it it speaks to a lonely childhood for her i do like that line right and yeah, I, I always love the loneliness of Marge and especially when the jokes are tied to that, when they're mm. good character-based jokes like that, not jokes at her expense. Uh, so at the rodeo, the, the warden is voiced by the late Charles Napier. Yay. He would come back. Grace. He would come back a lot. And we talked about him plenty on our Talking Critic miniseries we did like four years ago. So we love Charles Napier, died in 2011. Uh, the warden is an existing character. Do you remember in... Uh, it's the same design. You're right. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Marge goes to jail. Bart has a fantasy about seducing the warden <laughs> as Bartina. Uh, and it's the, the warden, they just recolor his mustache and hair to be uh, gray instead of uh, brown as they are in the fantasy, but it's the same design. Yeah. That saves you design work there. That's smart. Welcome to Waterville State Penitentiary. The contestants you'll see today are actual prisoners on a break from their telemarketing duties. Now, here comes our first outlaw. Doggy. Well, don't feel too bad for him, folks. He's in here for erecting a nativity scene on city property. There's so much evil in the world. I would guess Napier's most famous is the guard in Silence of the Lambs. I mean, I guess he's a Demi, Jonathan Demi regular. We we did Jonathan Demi's whole filmography on Blank Check a couple years ago, and he's in almost every one of his movies in a very bizarre range of roles. I always think of him as being the the main U.S. military point person in the austin powers franchise right uh when austin's getting unfrozen he's in that whole stretch of the movie and he has a line delivery that rings in my head forever where there's like eight different split screens showing like all the different things they need to prepare to uh upon dr evil's return uh and he's calling all the different world leaders and he says like you know do this do this get russia on the phone feed my fish pack my bags i'm going to london england and he says england and i love it i i i always want to say england but he's like that perfect at this kind of despite demi showing that the guy had a lot of range and actually could be used in a great many ways he is so perfect as this kind of gruff uh, uh, sort of force in people's lives we should also mention he's uh like the one of the main characters the ted turner style right mogul who's jay sherman's boss on the critic and is so funny on that duke phillips and it does feel like right after the critic they start using napier anytime they have a guest star like this for a couple episodes yeah i think this this warden character would come back a few more times and then charles napier would play two additional characters before he passed away but uh, al jean took over the show in the following year so obviously he wanted to get charles napier back in some kind of voice acting role and he he played his fair share if he wasn't a general he was usually like some sort of prison employee yeah he's he's a guy who yells at people in prison like he got well it's like how arlie ermy was only that role or a joke about that role in most of his casting after Full Metal Jacket. Um, I love the way the Simpsons use Napier. It's this thing I like where it's like, he's not a guest star in the same way as someone like Keaton or like Valanche in this episode, right? Where it's like the episode's built around having this hot new uh, talent uh, in the ecosystem of the show for one episode, or it's a quick joke of someone playing themselves. 
it's almost like they're sitting there and they go like, well, we could probably get Harry Shearer to play a warden <laughs> or Azaria and it would be funny, but it also would be better if we just get the kind of guy who plays the warden in these types of movies who most people don't know by name, mm. would vaguely recognize by face, but not be able to remember where they knew him from. But it, it's like this weird kind of verisimilitude of just like, get the real thing rather than having one of the other guys do an impression of a Jack Napier. Well, it's like how they just start, they just go like, let's just get J.K. Simmons to be the J.K. Yeah. J. Jameson guy. Right, like, right. We- <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so the uh, rodeo starts, we see a man die on screen seemingly. Yeah. Just land face first, snap his neck. And it, I I think the joke is about uh, how the ridiculousness of it, but having a joke about like he's in here for a nativity scene on private property that feels almost like a conservative joke like a fox news joke it's odd it is odd it it, like is that a schwartzwelder joke you know because he was like the one sort of voice in the mix at this point in time who's sort of like pushing back on overly liberal values invading everything yeah i can't i can i I really like marge's response to that though there's so much evil in the world so much evil Uh, in the world i can Um, my only liberal view on it is that they're joking about how that that people would be that extreme about it or to think that it's that yeah but but otherwise it just reads like a conservative joke yes right it's like an actual it, it would be a fox news headline today absolutely if that happened it would be like can you believe how dare they infringe upon his rights um it is funny. I mean, there is sort of like a meta joke to this opening chunk of, you know, Marge at the beginning saying, we never get to do things that I want to do. We're always doing what everyone else thinks is fun. I want to do my boring thing. And then the show cuts over her boring thing and cuts to <laughs> the kind of thing that Homer would suggest at the beginning of an episode, right? Yes. Like, it does feel like the apron thing, the joke is not really touching on any of that at all. And the entire entry point for what the episode becomes about is Homer getting attracted to some weird sign on the end of the road, which feels like so many of the episodes in this point in time start with Homer reading something in the newspaper and going, we have to go, you know, and then it's a candy expo or chili (laughs) cook off or whatever it is. Yeah, The show could have just started here. Well, here we are at the prison rodeo and then it could have been minute one. (laughs) Right. Uh, The joke is Marge saying I should have an episode. I should get to start off an episode with a non, you know the false red herring opener and then they go like not even worth the screen time. where's my set piece the show denies yeah. her, her her pitch for a set piece and uh yeah instead they they do the thing that homer and the jocular spirit of the show is which is uh, at the time which is just like violence done to criminals and it's like <laughs> yes. so consequence free well not cut this also comes from a time of just like well if someone's in prison they're an awful person and so they must be shown like you don't feel bad if a horrible thing happens to them is is the spirit of a lot of these jokes too yeah this episode's uh odd in a lot of ways and once again it's just like it it really feels like two seasons earlier this episode would never be this apolitical Mm. and certainly the ways in which it's political are just a very passive coding of like well everyone in prison is snake right 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm just happy that we dodged a sexual assault joke, especially with prisoners, especially with a conversation about Oz at the end of the episode. Yeah. 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 For, fortunately, there's no drop the soap joke. Yeah. We, I mean, we talk about too the like gradings away at Futurama and jokes of, say, like Panda Love get in mm-hmm. because <laughs> he's busy and yeah. not there yes. to say, please don't do a rape joke on this show. Yeah. Now, I, can I say this? Because. I, I feel like it starts season 13. I, it's either 13 or 14. There's a run of like two seasons where I noticed a major increase in super casual homophobic jokes. You're talking about the influence that South Park must have had at this point in time. There is like suddenly for two seasons, like eight episodes where there's a joke that's just someone calling someone else gay in in a derogatory way, completely removed from any actual sexuality. Uh, um, yeah, it, it's it's interesting to me how much it pops up and then disappears. Like there's just this one two year stretch where it's part of the language of the show. Homer like saying like Bart, don't be so gay, you know, yeah. and then it just goes away again. And it does really feel like the South Park thing of like, well, they're not going to be able to go as far as South Park. And they can't really curse because of FCC. The one thing you're allowed to do is use derogatory terms against a protected group that aren't uh, actually curse words. You well, know, like use use their terms in a derogatory way, should I say? Well, there's stuff with trans people too. Yeah, even worse. No, I I, I would be failing our friend Drew Mackey if we didn't uh, promote his video he did of just charting every gay joke for 32 seasons of Simpsons. And yeah, you can definitely spot in the teens. There's like a real mean streak just comes in there yeah. towards towards LGBT people in general. Look, yeah totally and there's stuff that's bad across the entire run of the show but it just what really jumped out to me is a two-season stretch where there are multiple instances of what are you gay stop being so gay like it's always that Mm -hmm. you know it's like (laughs) i I dare you to go do this unless you're gay you know (laughs) i guess the only homophobic joke we get is the gay clowns (laughs) (laughs) yeah they're more like drag queens behind the scenes and even on the commentary scully's like yeah yeah that's not the best like he he knows i mean it's not particularly cruel but it is just like look at these queenie guys like that that mostly seems what it is but yes uh, yeah that's where we also meet jack crowley right around then that he's uh bob dylan march really looked up why bob dylan wrote to keep him in prison but uh, and st- speaking of south park stuff bart gets to say toss his salad yes like i was shocked yeah. they got him was that chris rock bit in like 98 or something that's where we all learn the term toss so. toss your salad yeah i think so yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> well this um, is also what? where homer tries to like kill lisa like kill her like it's insane here's something to gore <laughs> yeah but the shirt joke is good because it's sort of like owning the misperceptions around the show based on things outside of the show right Mm -hmm. it's also fun homer logic well yes of course blue will calm you down calming blue right (laughs) right Right. uh and then there's the joke i guess it it comes up right after this but like a perfect example of my favorite type of simpsons joke which is just a thing is repeated and it's only funny the second time the first time you're like is that a failed attempt at the joke the guard when marge tries to come in she's like i'm here to teach art class and he goes "Ooh, art class and you're like is this like them just trying to cram some joke in there so they think a guy judging her art class and saying it in a funny voice is funny and then like oh here's our next prisoner he's here for solitary Ooh, solitary (laughs) is like 
my favorite kind of thing, I bring this up just because when you told me like roughly where you were in the season and where I could pick an episode from, the only other one I was really tempted by was uh, Skinner's Sense of Snow, which I don't love as an episode overall, but has one of my absolute favorite Simpsons jokes ever. Mm -hmm. It's a perfect, perfect joke for me, which is when they're snowed into the school and I think Bart says, uh, uh, well, or, 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 I think it's um, uh, Nelson says, like, I'm part Eskimo. I can go out there and make my way through the snow. And he goes, I don't care if you're Christy Yamaguchi. There's no way I'm letting anyone outside of this school, right? Mm -hmm. And then someone goes like, but we're going to miss Itchy and Scratchy. And today's supposed to be the episode where they kiss. He goes, I don't care if they're kissing Christy Yamaguchi. I'm not letting <laughs> anyone out of this school. The idea that it's like the first time just feels like a shitty topical joke. Yeah, right? yeah. Like, name the person but it's actually not a shitty joke it's the layup for the better joke of skinner uses christy yamaguchi as his metric for everything <laughs> uh, he cares so much about christy yamaguchi and it's yeah. like uh, to, even if it was that i don't care right and, uh, and and once again it's like the guard joke in this where part of the joke is making the delivery almost identical both <laughs> times. Like the exact same rhythm, the exact same line reading. I don't care if you are Christy Yamaguchi. I don't care if they're kissing Christy Yamaguchi. You know, it's like uh, the, so my kind of thing. Well, speaking also of, of Looney Tunes violence, Homer then gets kicked by the bull, flies easily yeah. three stories into <laughs> yes. the air. Bounces off the guard. I just tower. like the guard. His immediate reaction is just fire tear gas indiscriminately I love that. I do. <laughs> to the audience. Just into the audience. Next up's a real low life. Bob Dylan wrote a song to keep him in prison. Say hello to Jack Crowley. <laughs> go go toss his salad. <laughs> oh, he's down. And it looks like old Tornado wants to caramelize his cram brulee. Yeah, do that. Somebody help him. Relax. They got rodeo clowns. Is my lipstick even? Go like this. Hey! Hey, over here! Here, bully, 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 bully! That's not gonna do it, Marge. You need something red. Wow. Hey, Toro! Here's something to gore! Dad! Not now, honey. Daddy's busy. Uh, but but here's a perfect example. I accept this as Looney Tunes violence. The point where you break it for me is when you're seeing guts, when limbs have fallen off, you know, <laughs> where there's anything that the show acknowledges would require emergency surgery mm. versus this where it's like you can have him experience a comical injury and then cut to him at a chiropractor and say, this is the solution, right? Sure, yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll buy that. <laughs> uh, yeah, so then in the next shot, we get, we see the infirmary. Sideshow Bob is there, which I yeah. always forget. He just appeared. A rare appearance of Sideshow Bob, who they mentioned later. He was not at all in Scully's ears. Scully didn't really care about him. Uh, he will be in, in three episodes. The uh, the one where, oh. the, did a, where they suggest Dave Chappelle should be on Krusty the Clown show. That's right. But, but that's the only Bob one. He waits until the near end of his four-year run to be like all right i guess i'll do a sideshow bob but uh and did you also notice that the man who removed bart's tattoo was the guy treating the bull like they're bringing back a lot of old yeah. old mm. character designs so wait r remind me because you guys are fresher on this is cape fear the last bob before the sully run Oh, on uh, the Scully run? No, no. Uh, the, the last one. Oh, oh Bob Roberts? Uh, the Frasier one. Yeah, the, uh, brother yeah. from another series. Right. Okay, 
okay. Because that does feel like at that point you've heightened the joke, maybe take Bob off the stovetop for a couple of years, right? What? And I do think that all the post-Scully Bob episodes are kind of diminishing returns. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. it felt like uh, Oakley and Weiss and I were trying to retire Bob because they felt like the show was ending. So, okay, Bob is no longer psychotic. He was reformed. Unfortunately, he has to go back to prison because right. the prison is so corrupt. But when they bring him back, and we'll talk about it when we get that episode, I don't like how they have to retcon Bob into being fixated on Bart again when it feels like he went through something. He had yeah, an arc. Yeah, they finished it. You're right. It is. It is kind of a perfect... Bob ending brother from another series. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but yes, while they're in the infirmary, Marge tries to, I, I love how she comforts Homer with like, you like Jimi Hendrix, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> that's so sweet. And, uh, and she starts appreciating all this art that's in there. I, I got to get Bob Anderson, the director and his team uh, credit. They did really, it's hard to make now. It, this art style is very like mall kiosk, but to, to do good art in another style that still is recognizably Simpsons is not easy mm -hmm. at all. No. And you've already established that Marge has her own distinct art style. Right. And this mm -hmm. is like very different from that. You see a very specific artistic vision from this that still fits in the Simpsons aesthetic. Just want to call out another one of my favorite jokes in this episode is the, uh, uh, how do you feel, homie? I can't complain. Uh, whip hand to the sign, no complaining. Uh, that great. rule only applies to the prisoners. Oh, it hurts so much. Like, that's another perfect little Simpsons That feels joke. like a Mel Brooks joke, almost. Yeah. yeah. Yes. I, yes. And they touch on it briefly, but the reason Marge cares so much about Jack is that Marge is a, uh, she wanted to be a professional painter. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Once again, like, I feel like episodes that tap into Marge's fundamental loneliness and the sort of lost dreams of Marge, right? The life that she always wonders if she could have had. I always think those episodes have a little juice to them. Because because Ruth Powers is the same thing. Like, it's a vision for Marge of, like, what if I was my own independent woman, you know? Yeah. Anytime and she makes a new friend, uh, what's it called? Uh, Love on the Fast Lane? Um, the Jacques episode? Oh, Life like, on the Fast Lane, yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. Any any episode like that, I, I think innately is is kind of interesting. And even though this episode is cruel to Marge, I like that it's at least acknowledging her aspirations to be an artist, because I think the last time they yeah. referenced that was in the, the Tax Day episode in which Homer gives Marge a painting that she painted saying, <laughs> thanks for using nuclear power. She looks at it and it's a weird moment where she says, you had a lot of talent once, girl. Yeah, and she just walks yeah. out of the room, sadly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and I think even if this episode ends up mocking Marge a lot, there's a fundamental kindness to framing an episode around someone who listens to Marge mm -hmm. and pays attention to her, you know? Yeah. Um, well, where she does have that kind of recognition from another person. And they also didn't want to make this, uh, Scully said about figuring out this episode a major thing for them was like they want to do a marge episode that is not marge gets a new job and so in a way she does though in yeah. a way yes i guess she well she helps another person get a job so it's, uh, <laughs> it's she's also an art instructor though no briefly. you know what she does get a job yeah. you're right i take that back I, but then it doesn't have to do with most of the episode right i mean it's like once again this is another thing that i think i like in the scully area but really starts to fuck them over post scully which is these episodes just start running so fast, right? Like there are like eight to nine set pieces per episode. Each episode has like six plot lines, right? Mm. That in an early season would have been an entire episode. And by the mid, you know, 90s, it would have been three of these per episode. And now it's six, you know? Mm -hmm. And at the worst, I think you get to nine where it's like, what's the episode? Um, 
Oh, it's uh, Rainier Wolf Castle's daughter. Have oh, you yeah. Gotten that one yet, or is that after? No, that's later. Yeah. yeah, it's coming up. Yeah, right. And that episode is also functioning as the Simpsons Go to Canada episode, I believe. That's oh, right. Yeah. And, yeah. And they don't go to Canada until minute 18. No, I really hate those like Simpsons go so it's advertised as Simpsons go somewhere and it's like yeah. they spend 3 minutes in a place like Right, <laughs> right, it's just like you could do the episode like a Bart's girlfriend episode is is a classic Simpsons format at this point, right? The Simpsons go to blank episode is a classic form. Like we focus in on a character who's always been on the peripheral like Rainier Wolfcastle. That's a classic. And then you get to these episodes where it's like it's all nine at the same time and each up ep- each each episode plotline only gets four minutes before it moves on to the next thing. It feels so hurried. We're like, once again, it, it is bizarre how quickly this episode moves on from Marge's job. Uh, but yeah, when uh, when Marge and home uh, escorts Homer out of there, they also kind of rip themselves off with Marge says heckhole, just like the pee-pee soaked heckhole from Cape Fear. That's true. Yeah, Although it's, it's gosh forsaken and not pee-pee soaked. That's true, yeah. <laughs> and, and, the, and the sound effects all on, on Homer's back are just so, so painful. I, I know, Griffin, you've had some back pains in the past. I have. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I was going to bring this up. I, you know, watched all these episodes recently, uh, or recently enough in the last half year you sent me the list of season 22 i looked at it pokemon immediately jumped out to me because it feels close to the classics and uh, the, the presence of keaton but i almost completely forgot about the b plot for this <laughs> and uh upon re-watching it remembered how uncomfortable it makes me uh-huh. just because I'm, I'm like someone with a bad back i i fucked up my back uh, working a couple years ago and like a year of lockdown my injury has atrophied a lot i mm. i'm i'm moving less and like there's just the episode feels this b plot feels visceral to me and then i'm also jealous that i don't have this magical trash can <laughs> at my home uh, to use i'm just sorry. you could just try falling across random objects in your apartment and give it a shot i've tried i've tried it hasn't worked yet yeah uh, i i'm sorry this michael keaton episode then turned into such a, a painful b plot for you i mean it's right. better than that episode about the uh vaccine distribution after <laughs> oh. right wing media creates a, a frenzy about a pandemic that doesn't really exist that one was really tough to watch yeah yeah actually yeah uh bob's wife was just talking about how uncomfortable that episode is yeah 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 i just Uh, was like oh not i'm not finding any of this funny please please move on from this plot line (laughs) uh so the kids are abandoned at the prison as the act break joke and um and then it comes back from the act break homer is just in horrible pain mainly thinking about how much he wants a blt and then comes like my favorite joke of the episode but it has to be it's like you said griffin these repetition ones Marge looking out the window and seeing the prison. It's okay. It's kind of funny. Yeah. But what it what it sets up is so yeah. funny to me. I love that. And but it also is a joke about them spitting in the face of like if you give a shit about where the map of Springfield is or where things are in relationship to one another, you suck. Like you're not supposed to care. Yeah. Which to be fair, that's the exact kind of reality breaking joke I not only am fine with fine with but find funny Mm -hmm. like i feel like if you are demanding that sort of continuity from the show you are always going to be frustrated and the show is always going to take the approach that serves the joke best at that moment rather than trying to maintain any consistency 
the ones that bum me out are like fundamental betrayal of essential spirits of who the characters are, you know, or just events that no one could ever recover from physically, <laughs> emotionally. They would never stop referencing this, you know, like, you know, which, of course, that then becomes its own joke of like the Armin Tamzarian, the Snowball 12 kind of like, and now we're going to mm. pretend that none of this ever happened. But but that joke, I'm all for the window yeah i i love that joke and it sets up a better one later yeah. but uh but yeah so marge goes to the prison that's where we get the la di da bit like mm -hmm. that the, and again great repetition <laughs> i i also like in the design you can spot they took the care like marge could have just walked in normally they actually did bother to draw she brought her art supplies yeah, back i like with that her. i like that and another joke <laughs> setting up a future joke is when she her joke doesn't go over well and there's silence and then a gun cocking i love that we'll hear that I again with that. skinner <laughs> but yes actually i have another clip here uh marge teaching the class <laughs> mrs marge simpson I'm here to teach an art class. Ooh, art class. La-dee-da. This is Zach Pross. He's going to solitary. Ooh, solitary. La-dee-da. Welcome yeah. to freeing the artist within. Not literally, of course. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Now, I wanted to paint fresh fruit, but the prison cafeteria would only give me sauerkraut. Ugh. That's depressing. Let's <laughs> let a little sunshine in. Hmm. Question? Can I smell your dress? <laughs> hey, you show some respect. This one here is not for smelling. <gasps> Why, thank you, Jack. No problem. Now. Let's paint. <laughs> hey, can I smell your clothes? I always think now, uh, 20 years later, of that image of sauerkraut lit by prison lights as the <laughs> yeah. most depressing image ever. So they really landed on something great there. It's a very good depressing image, yes. Can I also say I'm so happy you played the real audio of the la-di-da clip to underline how good the execution is in the episode after I butchered it. Like, <laughs> it's, it's identical, the rhythm with which he says la-di-da both times, which is the whole... <laughs> thing for me um but but another thing to spotlight here now that we've listened to it is i love that keaton's doing a character here and that's what's similar to the albert brooks thing it's interesting that you bring that up because brooks played so many voices of course for so long on the show that every time he came on he couldn't just be albert brooks right it's like this time he's southern huckster albert brooks this time he's French Lothario Albert Brooks, right? This time he's like a, a corporate culture, new age boss Albert Brooks or whatever. I, I love that like Keaton comes on, the character looks like a Simpsons character rather than I feel like in later seasons. And even at this point, you start to get into like, oh, it's just a caricatured version of the real person. They start to look off model with the characterization of the Simpsons. Characters get less rounded. They start to have smaller eyes and finer features and things like that. He's like a handsome Simpsons dude, but he still looks like a Simpsons dude. And he's doing a voice and playing a character and making comedic choices. And this character is just like immediately funny, just listening mm -hmm. to what Keaton is doing. 
And I think it helps that he was kind of in a slump because there was no pressure to make him look like he looks in his latest movie or, you know, not to disguise his voice in any way. It helped that he was just in these these lesser movies where there was no pressure right. from the outside. It also just feels like I remember being a Michael Keaton fan, someone who was keeping the flame aloft <laughs> at this point in time, watching this episode live and going, who is that? You know, like it, it which is my favorite kind of Simpsons guest star where you go like, oh, I recognize some vocal quality there, but I don't know who it is. And it's like uh, uh, Meryl Streep uh, as as the Lovejoy daughter is another oh, yeah. great one where it's like, this is a real performance. This is someone treating The Simpsons like an acting job, not just cashing in on their reputation or their pre-existing sort of like uh, character type. Or, or Michelle um, Pfeiffer is Mindy too. Like she's, you know. Right, another great one. Yeah. yeah. No, I yeah. yeah, I don't think I knew it was Michael Keaton in in first watch until the credits. Like cuz I was well, a teen, I probably was thinking his time was over cuz he had just done Jack Frost, which everybody was yeah. making fun of. Like Yeah. So. My favorite fact, I I'm sorry, but my favorite yeah. fact I love to repeat all the time because it's a thing that you cannot unsee once you've seen it. Jack Frost was supposed to be George Clooney and he very wisely dropped out after Batman and Robin and was like, "Oh, I shouldn't make uh, bad movies." Anymore. <laughs> but if you look at it the snowman is 100 percent george clooney the snowman wow. looks nothing like michael keaton who does have a face that you could easily caricature on the snowman you could give it the eyebrows right and instead the snowman 100 percent looks like george clooney Wow, I did not know that. I yeah. uh, For no reason, I was looking up information about the movie Return of the Killer Tomatoes, and I forgot that it was an early Clooney movie. That's so all right, yeah. He could return to his bad movie roots, but he didn't. He didn't. He absolutely uh, did. yeah. uh, oh, but yes, the, the, the prisoner who wants to smell things, that's the late Robert Schimmel a uh, mm. stand-up who was a dirty comedian of the of the stern set he was a regular stern appearer uh he had a lot of health issues when when he recorded this episode he was like recovering i think from uh lymphoma i think it was mm. he yeah, did cancer multiple times right yeah yeah and and a heart attack too like he right. and a car crash am i wrong about this you he know had, like you, a wild life i think you're right yeah i i had totally for i had looked up like his old hbo thing he's like oh okay now i remember these bits about like fuck and it's mostly jokes about like is my dick inside of someone or not <laughs> like not to be reductive i think he, he seemed funny enough it, it feels like he was just nearby and wanted to do a few lines i don't feel like this was he was cast for this i mean honestly scully could have come up with him in 80s comedy yeah, 80s yeah. you know he might have been friends yeah. with him yeah his final death was from a car crash that was the thing that was so wow. wild Shit. about him yeah. is that he had cancer twice he had a heart attack in between and then he developed cirrhosis from hepatitis C from a blood transfusion and oh. yet the thing that killed him was a car crash. Wow, that's what a uh, life. that's insane. Yeah. Man. Yes. But yeah, he's good at playing like the creep who wants to smell things. They that's the closest they get to Marge in danger in prison uh joke as well, which is nice. Mm -hmm. Uh but uh but yeah, I I will say when he says there's a couple times where Keaton, a little bit of the B man comes out in in him when he's oh, when he's big. I'm yeah. glad you said it. He's there. There's some uh, conflict with the most, you know, kind of energy here. He does have that sort of like when he when he starts going faster. Yeah. There's a little bit of that Beetlejuice like, you know, which which by the way, I mean my my favorite mode of Keaton. It, it, you know, it's like I I will never not laugh at Beetlejuice esque rhythms. I do not resent in any way him going back to that well 
Yeah, I love I love even when he's playing like say in Jackie Brown, uh, Nicoletti, and one of like most button down guys he can be. But if occasionally he's just like, hey, look, let me just tell you here, like it's I I love that energy coming out of him. He was ready for Beetlejuice to go Hawaiian, and it never happened. Uh, I, know. I know. I think that thing would have been great. That's one of the examples of like I feel like that movie is cited a lot as like oh this incredibly stupid idea that thankfully wasn't made that is indicative of how bad studio culture is. And I always hear it. I'm like, no, it sounds like a pretty good pitch that shouldn't be cited as a near disaster that's a movie that should have been made but but i was gonna say like it's a thing i love about keaton where i always feel like keaton is doing as much as a person possibly can while still being grounded right like he's a big actor he makes a lot of choices he does a lot of business right like he's very ticky he's very behavioral and yet i always feel like there's an emotional root there whether he's doing drama or comedy and i remember going to see a spotlight with my mom and there's a scene and that's like one of his most toned down performances ever if not his single most toned down performance ever and there's a scene where like ruffalo or someone comes to him and goes like hey, sir, I just found the new reporting. He's like, come walk with me. And they do like a Sorkin-esque walk and talk through the Boston Globe while he's like telling him his findings. And my mom and I broke out in laughter at the same moment and looked at each other. And we just went like, he can't stop being Keaton. And there's just <laughs> something to like the way he was listening and the swagger and the way he was arching his eyebrows and pursing his lips and all of his sort of stuff. It's like, he still has this weird kind of Keaton-y rhythm that's almost like his own version of the Elvis thing, you know? Oh yeah. Like there's just sort of like, Oh, a, a, a weird musicality to the way he speaks, whether he's doing his own voice or he's doing a Beetlejuice-esque character voice or this or that. And then it, it literally is also just like posing with him. I mean, he does have like his looks and his angles and things like that. And it's a thing I fucking love about him. And it makes him, I think, such an underrated voiceover actor because he's one of the voiceover actors where you can really hear his physicality. Mm. You know, it's, yeah. it, it gives the animators a lot to work with because you can kind of hear him behind the mic moving and gesticulating and whether he's playing a car or a convict it gives you a lot to do to either play against or to use and just let him do beetlejuice in a cartoon like just bring him back for that yeah, all like, the time. Uh, all uh, but yeah. but yes the next scene after this is homer going to hibbert uh, about his back problems we see that his back is literally <laughs> exploded it's should, in like five pieces should be dead but yes yeah <laughs> Your spine is more twisted than Sinbad's take on marriage. <laughs> so, just give me some drugs and surgery. Oh, I'd love to, but uh, to be honest, modern medicine has a lousy record of treating the back. We spend too much time on the front. Yeah, there's some neat stuff on the front. I'm going to send you to my chiropractor. Hey, I thought real doctors hated chiropractors. Well, that is our official stance, but between you, me, and my golf clubs, they're miracle workers. Uh, and that's where there's that great line of like your spine, spine is more twisted than Simbad's take on, on marriage. I love he he has to pause for a sec to think of uh, Simbad's take on marriage. <laughs> Another of my favorite lines. There's so many in here that like I never associated with this episode, even though I love them. Like Homer saying like, yeah, there's some neat stuff on the front. Yeah. Like, I love that line. Yeah. Uh, D- did either of you guys collect the the Playmates figures at the time? I had a few, and now I buy them randomly because it's like, oh, uh, I could just buy a Chalmers figure on Amazon for eight bucks. That sounds yeah. fun. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. I had such a, uh, not a complete collection, but a really robust collection. And then I, I gave most of them away, got rid of them, sold them off over.
over years, and then in rewatching over the summer, I started rebuying them with with some real limitations. Uh, <laughs> but it also has helped that it's one of the the lines that has not really increased in value at all. You can pretty much still find most of the things for how much they cost at the time. But I had most of the playsets at the time. For for listeners who don't know, the defining thing of that toy line, which went really deep, and they did like twenty series, and so they got into real E tier characters and variants <laughs> of characters and stuff. But they also made play sets of the most common environments on the show and they all had voice chips in them. So like the figures had chips, the playsets had chips, and if you put the figure on the playset, each character would say like four or five lines in that playset, usually ostensibly connected to that environment, times they had been in that environment. Of course, what goes on later is like, oh, series 18 is when they finally get around to doing Agnes Skinner. <laughs> but like the playset at that point was like Herman's military antique store. Oh. So Agnes has never been there, but the only place that she talks in is that one because of release schedules and shit like that. Wow. But I bring this up only because I did, in rewatching most of the show, I was surprised by how many lines and classic jokes there are where I just go, oh, wow, in a million years, I never would have remembered that this is the episode that that line comes from, right? It all just sort of gets blended together, soup in your head. But the other weird thing for me is I had all those play sets and, and used them so much that there are lines that are burned into my memory because I would hear them like five times a day in my bedroom, right? <laughs> just from your toys talking to you. Right, and it, right, and like sometimes they would just malfunction and they would just go off, right? <laughs> I really wish I had more of those. Uh, they came out when I was uh, 18 or 19. They started coming out and I had my yeah. first job. So it worked out to like, I could buy a figure play set for every yeah. day's worth of work. So I, I was kind of right. more interested in you know putting gas in my car and stuff like that. But if I was a kid, <laughs> no. I would have been asking for so many of them. I, I was like, right, like 12 or 13 and it was like peak allowance build up now i'm ready to spend you know mm. But but yes, it, there are so many lines that are like burned into my memory, not just the lines themselves, but the exact line delivery, because I have heard them, I mean, truly thousands of times. <laughs> and the other funny thing is sometimes I will watch an episode and I'll recognize, oh, there are literally 20 separate playset lines in this one episode where you can tell that someone at Playmates just was like, let's just pick one good episode and call <laughs> as many lines from this one as possible so I don't have to rewatch every guy damn episode <laughs> this is slightly related and off on a tangent but it, that's fine this is what this episode's all about uh oh, yeah. long long ago somebody made a mystery science theater uh, screensaver and all of the clips were from the episode warrior of the lost world so now whenever i watch that episode <laughs> yeah. and they say a riff i'll remember that was in the screensaver i heard a billion times <laughs> right Right, right. It's the same kind of thing for me. It it like it throws me out of the episodes now because I'm like, oh, that's weird that they're stealing that line from that toy playset. You know, like that's <laughs> how my brain. Right. It feels like a stupid reference. <laughs> like I'm reacting to it the same way as if they made a like a, a fava beans and a nice Chianti joke. I will say we loved the critic, but there's a bit later yes. in here that's just like that's just a critic joke and it, yeah. it's lame but totally uh, but but yeah so can uh, i throw out yes. a, a theory sure because you guys are at the the point you're on the precipice of of gene coming back and starting his complete dictatorship over the show <laughs> for decades um i before even getting on my simpsons run i rewatched all of the critic pretty early into lockdown which i don't think i'd ever seen all of it before and certainly had not seen it all in order and i left the critic a lot i do think watching all of that watching the early like gene and rice on simpsons and then watching them come back 
it does feel like there is an animosity carried over to Gene's return, where not just you have him shoehorning in jokes that feel like this is more of a critic joke, this is more of a critic plotline, this is more of a critic character, but also that he kind of resents the show. Like, he resents The Simpsons, that the critic couldn't become The Simpsons, mm. and that he's back at The Simpsons. I, I, I'm curious to see if you guys feel this as well when you get to those episodes. Hmm. And I don't know if it was just because I'm locked up in my goddamn apartment <laughs> for a year doing nothing but overthinking all of this shit. And I was so deep dive immersioned into all of these shows watching both of them pretty close together. But I did feel that. Like, it feels like there are Gene jokes, especially at the beginning of his return, that feel like this stupid show. Like, <laughs> there's a lot of, there's a lot of this show should have ended five years ago jokes when mm -hmm. Gene comes back. I a feel lot of I feel like they had a lot of aspirations. Uh, they got their own shows. They got The Critic and Teen Angel Teen as Angel, well. Yeah. And their yeah. their experience with television was so bad outside of The Simpsons that Mike right. Reese just left the industry and now he just does a right. week on, a, a day a week on the show. And that's basically yeah. it for the past 20, right. uh, 20 plus it, years. It feels like there's a jadedness in general, I think, from how much they were kicked around outside the safe haven of The Simpsons and also a frustration that like, ugh, we're back on The Simpsons now. You know? I proved, I, well, I can see that Gene going like, I... I was going to prove that I didn't need The Simpsons and now he's right. going back and he does need The Simpsons. And well, I also think the spirit of critic comes through me and Bob say this many times where something feels, we know, we don't know what those scripts were, but we know there was a season three of scripts written for critic. And yeah. it's, it's just a question of how much of that was just Gene taking those to the Simpsons room and being like, let's cannibalize every joke that we can from this thing. I, I would imagine a lot of it. I mean, like guys like that don't, ever want to throw stuff away if mm. there is any way to recycle it you know it's like especially if it was your baby and your show and you put so much into it and it never really got a fair shake i feel like almost to prove a point you want to make sure that all of that goes to you somewhere mm. you put that somewhere in the broth you know yeah i i i think so i but it it uh, i mean we could go on all, all day about gene yeah. and his his influence but i definitely think that that kind of anger at rejection i don't think we had considered that yeah, angle too, yeah. but I think you're definitely onto something there. Keep an eye out for it. Keep an eye out. Yeah. <laughs> and so while Marge is teaching the class again, where I love how complimentary she is to that man's very violent painting. That so it's the Sardonicus. Sardonicus. Yeah, Sardonicus. Sardonicus. I like him a lot. That yeah. is a reference to a William Castle movie. That's all I'll say. Oh. I think wow. it's Dr. Sardonicus. <laughs> so uh, I feel like Dana Gould wrote that joke. <laughs> you yeah. know, he's in the room at this time. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. And also, this is where ja uh, Marge learns that Jack is in jail because he shot a guy to Dapu, which leads to a very, <laughs> uh, very dark and but funny joke about how that it's apparently not even it's a hundred dollar fine now to shoot Apu because so many people have done it. <laughs> Look, we don't need to get too into the Apu of it all. I'm sure it's a thing you guys are reckoning with on a near weekly basis. Oh, yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. But it is kind of startling to hear that joke and remember how much at this point in the show he has become a guy who is constantly shot as one of his major games, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. I understand the joke is that like oh places like 7-elevens get held up a lot but this is sort of the ultimate heightening of the like he is so thoroughly dehumanized and i'm, <laughs> I'm removing this from the racial implications
implications of it, but it's part of the soup too, of just like, he's so dehumanized that shooting a poo shouldn't even be considered a crime. We've all shot a poo. Now my bigger problem with this is, my bigger problem with this is, and this is like uh, jumping ahead to the end of the episode, do we not think he should have been an arsonist from the beginning? Yeah, Yeah, I I think they really wanted that a poo joke, and it's weird because they really weren't doing those kind of a poo jokes post Merkin era, post five and six. I remember the last big one was a poo. He took the bullet for James Woods, but it bounced off a previous bullet in his chest. (laughs) And deflector, yeah. yeah. Which, if I could go back in time, it's like, don't take that bullet. Let James Woods get hit. No, 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 no. Certainly, he needs all the bullets he can get. But um, I, I feel like a, having him be a dude who shot one of the show's beloved characters, right? <laughs> Makes him a little bit less reformable for someone who is only going to have 14 minutes of story arc at this point, right? <laughs> yeah. And secondly, when the joke becomes later in the episode, he can't stop burning shit. I do feel like this is another glimpse at how this episode could have been stronger. I think the better version of this is Marge is trying so hard to argue for the idea of reform form and he is so compelled by whatever the guy's vice is right he is compelled whereas the burning stuff becomes kind of arbitrary at the end of the episode and just makes him feel like he's like early daffy duck like he's just like <laughs> laughing maniacally and pouring gasoline on everything and setting flames rather than if it's just he has this compulsion it's and marge is vouching for the idea that he's cured now it's a it's a far cry from the tender artist we meet yeah in, uh, in the first two acts yeah right. i i guess you know they do show that apu forgave him and that maybe shows that oh apu who is like a saintly man who would forgive a guy who shot him i will also say in 2021 the idea of uh an asian minority being shot and no one caring that's uh it comes even more loaded than it did before like that sucks yeah right. like that's like that's the thing it's it's how much Pooh's joke was getting shot at at this point in time is not in and of itself a racist joke but when that's one of the only Asian characters the show has ever had, right? And the most prominent one, and one of his biggest games is that level of it doesn't matter, shooting him isn't even a crime. It just lends to the overall dehumanization of the thing. I do like as a solitary joke, I don't think a poo found it very polite when he shot him. And then a poo saying he actually was very polite. Yeah. He waited for me. Like I do like the jo- the joke of a polite shooter. Yeah, I feel he like he was a gentleman about shooting me. Not to take this joke apart too much, but I feel like they wanted to eat their cake and have it where just like part of the joke is a poo is dehumanized and they care so little about him that it's not even a problem if you shoot him. He's just the guy who's expected to be shot because of his position in this world. Right. Yeah. Well, right. though I think, you know, if already it's this should have been treated like marijuana convictions once it uh, it's been decriminalized in states. Yes. If it's only a $100 fine, then Jack Crowley should be out of jail because and have it expunged from his records like it it should be retroactive you know (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I, I do like the gag of her asking what it's called and he's like a time to kill titles are hard <laughs> I, yeah. too. Well, uh, once again it's like that's what the meat of this episode should be more is just Marge really really fighting for the idea that the kindness can overwhelm his inner demons right yeah, yeah. and it, it just feels like that gets lost a lot 
Then we get a quick scene at a chiropractor helping Homer uh, where he says he does feel slightly better. I and he's, feel a little better. Uh, and he's going to have to go in three times a week for many, many years, which, yeah. uh, I mean, the stance of it seems to be that like some chiropractors are scams, but maybe others are good. I, I have never been to a chiropractor. Just watching videos of people getting popped and cracked in it, it does, I, I just shudder a bit. I, like, I do like the joke. Look, it's, uh, it's not cracking your back now. You're going to hear a loud cracking sound. <laughs> That's a good joke. Yeah. Sorry, Griffin. That's a great. Um, no, I look as a person for whom this hits uh, way too close to home. I will say the chiropractor thing. I fall on both sides of it equally. <laughs> uh, I have had great success from it. And I also have had times where it feels like an absolute racket. The joke that hit me hardest, excuse me, as I think coming up after this, where Marge makes the joke about him, or maybe it was before this, about uh, if he's done his exercises, his stretches for his back, right? <laughs> oh, yes, when Bart, when Bart says, like, well, are you doing your exercises? Yeah, right, when you did all your homework, hey, high five. Because right. <laughs> I certainly was handed, like, a 20-page brochure of things I was supposed to do on a daily basis, and I was like, oh, that's a reason I'm not in school anymore. <laughs> like, I had that exact feeling of, like, I don't you need- want me to do every day i do morning stretches now only because they have been video gamified and the video <laughs> game ring fits only yeah. it, it tells me i'm a good boy for doing it but my my chiropractor isn't at home with me yes certainly <laughs> not yeah uh but okay here's another clip here not only is this a great joke about marge's sundays uh but i in this bit here this is where i was like oh lisa doesn't give a shit about these prisoners no like, no that, it's it's shocking so how was it in the slammer Terrific, Bart. Sideshow Bob says he'll be seeing you real soon. (laughs) Oh, that Bob. Oh, and guess who's up for parole? My diamond in the rough. That scary guy? Scary talented. And I'm going to make sure the parole board knows it. You going to bribe him? I might grease the wheels of justice with some cookies. Oh, can I have some? Not till you finish your Sunday. (laughs) Is that enough? Two more bites. (laughs) So I I love this joke, and it does have uh, two different meanings that you could take away from it. I want to know what you guys think. So number one, there is something wrong with Marge's Sundays, and we don't know what it is. But number two is she spoils Bart to the point where eating Sundays is like eating vegetables. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So Uh, this is the thing for me. I think this joke works because it's both at the same time, right? It's it's what we were talking about earlier, where the joke becomes funnier in the repetition when you realize the first time was actually just the setup for the greater joke later. So the first time the joke fundamentally seems like they're so spoiled that indulgences now feel like obligations to them, right? Mm. And then the second time when they repeat the joke with Keaton's character and she says, what's wrong with my Sundays? <laughs> that becomes so funny to me. That it struggles. Like, home, Bart has to, like, catch his breath, like, <sighs> yeah. Oh, like, yeah. he's forcing it down. And, yeah. And the two more bites thing is such a great, like, specific of what a parent yells at you. Like, ah, two more bites, all right? I also, again, that, like, Lisa says, how is the slammer, that scary guy? This is not the empathetic Lisa we are used to. She's just like everybody else saying, oh, Marge, what do you why are you caring about this monster like he's in prison he must be awful well lisa's role in these episodes a lot of the time or for her to wander on screen and go dad you shouldn't do that yes yeah. so it's it's lisa pointing out like possible dangers it's it's the simpsons starting to think that lisa's role is to be the 
the annoying character, mm. which I always get bummed out by. And then, of course, the worst perversion of that is, like, Lisa saying, like, why are people so upset about a poo, you know, in, like, season 30 or whatever, yes. that they're now using Ooh. Lisa as as the alternate mouthpiece. Earlier in this episode, actually, the one other joke Lisa got was her barbecue is murder apron, which she's like, I'm going to wear this on 4th of July. Lisa celebrating that she can be a buzzkill. Yeah. Not that she's helping right. vegetarianism, but being a buzzkill. Once again, The Simpsons, at its best, fundamentally feels like a show about a girl who will grow up to write on The Simpsons. Mm -hmm. You know? <laughs> and and it, it like there's a prism through which you can view it in which you're like, this is like the kind of upper and the sort of like person who doesn't fit into their community who then becomes a comedy writer and goes on to work on a show like this. Not oh. that she has any intentions of working in comedy, but you know what I'm saying. The the worldview. Uh, okay, so it then goes straight to the parole hearing, which I have the clip for it here too, just because like Michael Keaton is so great in this, in this whole section here. I'm sure your macarons are scrumptious, Marge, but I've seen this warden turn down brownies. Honest to goodness, brownies. Next. <laughs> Oh, it's you. Well, just let me ink up my old denied stamp. One, please. This man is a gentle soul. I know he's made mistakes, but someone with his talent belongs on a boardwalk doing caricatures, not <laughs> behind bars. Lady, I know he charmed you with some pleases and thank yous, but he wasn't so polite to the guy he shot. Actually, he was. He waited with me till the ambulance came, then ran like a deer. Well, that's mighty nice. But if I let this creep out, would you like him skulking around your neighborhood? Honestly, it wouldn't bother me. Oh, what do you say? Well, lady, I'm going to call your bluff. The prisoner is hereby paroled into your custody. Oh, oh my goodness. I'm free? Oh, Mrs. Oh, jeez, I'm sorry. Sorry. You won't regret this. <laughs> This Once again, hearing the better line delivery of a joke I butchered earlier in the episode. And and you're right. You can feel him. You can hear him moving around. Right? You can yeah. hear the I mean, physicality. It, that's, that's part of the Keaton thing is I feel like it comes from his stand-up days. You know, that he's really interested in where to stop and start the rhythms, where to put the emphasis on a sentence. You know, like he really milks every ounce of opportunity from a line. And, and I just imagine, especially as a voiceover actor, I mean, he's known for riffing so much and doing things differently every take he must just be such a joy and such a wealth of material for animators to come in and just do like 10 different reads of the same line in a row each time probably totally different but the other thing that jumps out to me in that clip you just played uh, talking about the Napier thing that line about let me ink up my old denied stamp <laughs> is in and of itself not particularly funny on the page you have to imagine and if it were Azaria saying it he would do it well, but he would sell it like a joke. There's something funny about the fact that Napier is playing it so straight. That it's clearly not someone doing a comedy voice version of the steely prison warden. That it sounds like a real prison warden. Yeah, he's he's playing the character just like, oh, it's you. Like he's, right. he's who's for like 20 years or 10 years seen Jack Crowley here and he's sick of right. it. Yeah. There's a, a genuine intensity and darkness to him, which I think, I think Keaton flirts with Two, it's another thing I like about Keaton's performance in this is he, the part of him bringing that Beetlejuice edge to it is 
there's something innately menacing about this guy, mm. right? <laughs> yeah. it, it keeps you on edge for the whole episode because you're just like, is this guy really on the level or is he like a wolf in sheep's clothing? Uh, I mean, the violence done to my, like the strangling of Marge is so horrifying looking for just <laughs> yeah. a second. And he's, I guess the implication too is like that he, he doesn't know his own strength or he maybe he accidentally causes this harm without trying to. But yeah, uh, yeah so Crowley, you know, he heads home with the Simpsons. It's like the 17th person who's lived in their uh, basement yeah do you know what radon is yeah good night uh, good night <laughs> uh and and i also love like that is i played it as the first clip that sounds like beetlejuice asking which way to pray to, to mecca i yeah. love that line. Have, yes yes and i like the uh the the jewish joke as well uh i'm a big fan of that i, I um, as uncomfortable marge is but she's trying to not be she's like oh you're muslim uh uh she doesn't know what to do not wanting to offend but also has no clue which direction mecca could be in you know what i'm also just realizing i think as a jew on a show where crusty is pretty much the only regular representation i probably just like that joke out of some sense of pride that Keaton <laughs> is playing a Jewish character. I do think I just feel like, oh man, cool. We got him on the, on the team. He's part of the tribe. He probably doesn't often play Jewish people. I, I, I don't think he ever has. This is probably why I like this episode. <laughs> to any degree. In the next scene, Homer and Bart are sweeping up and... Homer's still in pain, refuses to do his. So then Homer falls over a trash can and it actually fixes his back perfectly. And I, I love his little butt shaking animation for how loosened up he feels. Yeah. Uh, and I wish this had turned into a runner of him going patent pending, just shoving people and saying patent yeah, I pending. thought they used it more. And the funny thing is, and the eerie thing is actually, this is called the spino cylinder. And I, I do my work in Google Docs just because it was easy to access. I typed in what I thought spino cylinder was spelled like, and Google was like, no, this is what a spino cylinder is spelled like. And it was correct. Whoa. So Google spell check realized I was spelling Homer's invention incorrectly. <laughs> wow. And I was creeped out by that. That's amazing occasionally i'll like lay on the edge of uh like my couch chair uh armchair to be like eh, well this cracked my back like the spino cylinder but i should look into the, like those back rollers i think that's the the miniature version of what the spino cylinder is did you do those exercises he gave you yeah right i did them while you were studying <laughs> <laughs> oh oh dad are you okay yeah in fact I feel fantastic! <laughs> that trash can must have unkinked your back! Not trash can, son! Dr. Homer's Miracle Spino Cylinder! Patent pending. Okay, okay. And as you can see, the unique dents in my invention perfectly match the contours of the human vertebrains. Hmm. Patent pending, patent pending, patent pending. Hey, who's this guy? You remember Jack? He's that talented painter! Who had a little brush with the law? You brought a convict to live here? Near my unpatented idea? I seen your idea and I don't want it. All I need is three squares and a job. That's right, a job. I know just where you can get one. I mean, here's another example of where this episode, like, frustrates me. Once again, pick this episode because it just represents so many of my feelings on both what this era does well and does poorly. But it feels like this type of episode, especially one centered around a guest star, it used to be you could have three plot lines, but especially if it's someone moves in with the Simpsons, 
all of them stem out of that shift, right? Yeah. <laughs> Instead here, like Homer is going through his B plot and then he has to like look off screen to be like, oh, yeah. that other guy's here. What's his deal? <laughs> I feel like right. Homer and should it, be involved. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Yes. And, and also it feels like Bart and Lisa are weirdly more involved with this side of the story than the there is an ex-convict living in their home side of the story. But it also means that every time they cut away to the spino cylinder thing, it feels like ugh, robbing us of heat and time. <laughs> and anytime you go onto the spinal cylinder thing, you're like, they don't really have enough time to play this thing out at full scale. Like, I do think there is comedic potential in, in this sort of chiropractic industry as a, a mafia kind of thing. But it's so rushed, you know, because they yeah. just have so little time to get to it. It just feels like it could be its own episode. And it also feels like this episode could just just be multiple different family reactions to Jack, you know? I feel like the chiropractor stuff is just one long walk to the Cairo Town joke. That that was written first, <laughs> yeah, and they figured out how maybe. to get there. But I really, yeah, you're right. I totally want to see Homer in on this plot with Jack, him being suspicious the entire time. More, like, uh, some interaction between the two would be so funny mm -hmm. outside of the one we see. Well, there's... Right? And, like, Lisa getting radicalized again. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Bart And Bart being, like... I mean, it, it, there's so much... This shit writes itself, but it's like... <laughs> If the premise is here's a here's a gruff, badass seeming kind of James Deany convict who Marge is convinced is actually a sensitive artist, that he's now living in their home and Bart is trying to pull out of him stories of him being like yeah. a badass criminal, and instead everything is weirdly sensitive, right? Like that that's like a whole running gag that the show never touches on that feels like it's a layup for them. Yeah, it's it's such a missed opportunity that Bart it could be everyone reacting to the convict in the house, but they all pretty actively ignore him. They're just like, I yeah. guess he lives here. All right. Well, I will say yeah. they, they have to make room for the chiropractor stuff and then also a ton of industry insider stuff in yeah. the third act. So. Right. Right. Yeah. No, I, I mean, the Wikipedia, it says that there was a lot of pushback from the chiropractic industry to this episode. I do feel like in this era in particular, every episode had some sort of backlash to it to that degree, right? Like, yeah. it just feels like almost always this era era of the early 2000s is marked by whoever the Simpsons stereotypes in some large way, usually a, an industry or specific profession, sometimes an entire country like Brazil. Yeah, It's yeah. like Simpsons has to apologize for making it sound like every blank is a blank. I think Brazil is this year and then in a few years it's the Catholic Church, which who cares? But yeah. Oh yeah the, right. no, yeah, the Super Bowl episode pissed off the Catholic Church hard. That was oh, probably... that one. Okay, yeah. Right, yeah. right that was a big one yeah, yeah yeah i i think too back then there was just more reporting on when a group of people got mad like as in a the catholic church if they get mad at something they got more publicity uh than they would have like eight years earlier perhaps but, but i also feel like simpsons was one of the only shows that was getting that kind of response on a regular basis like with other shows you'd be like oh maybe once or twice a season someone else will do an episode that will piss people off and they have to apologize to PETA, right? 
but it's like the Simpsons it was happening like so regularly at this point in time the other thing you see in all these Wikipedia entries is this episode was criticized by fans at the time sure, and I feel yeah. like the ones that are cited as having the worst fan responses at the time which I'm also sure is like going off a pretty small sample size of certain message boards and the few kind of places that were viewing Simpsons episodes in the early 2000s I find that those episodes tend to hold up better like you watch episodes that are a little more gimmicky like the the boy band episode coming up and those ones get good reviews you know mm. and then something like this it's like fans complain the episode was over long and didn't really go anywhere or like i i mean you guys covered this last season i know and i don't know where you landed on it but in my mind saddle sore galactica has always been an episode that people cite as like that's like point of no return right that's like emblematic of when the show starts to transition into something else and it's never going to be able to return to the golden age again and i had it saved in my memory like that and i got to saddle sore and i was like this is one of the better episodes of this season kind that is kind of how we came yeah, out of it. we yeah. were shocked to do right? that too because we thought we'd hate it uh, but yeah. there were funny it was really funny jokes and a good musical n number and we're recording all these out of order i don't know if if uh homer uh versus dignity is after or before this before before uh mm -hmm. but we covered that and it was like oh outside of that one joke this is hilarious this mm -hmm. is like very 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 funny stuff yeah yeah it, it is interesting how these episodes have aged you know and a lot of the bigger stunt ones or ones that seem like more radical character moves hold up worse than a lot of these smaller slice of life ones that people sort of criticize for being repetitive or low stakes or whatever at the time. Well, I will say too, Bob and I have identified that at least like uh, we were, were a few years older than you. We were in our late teens and we were angry and sexually <laughs> frustrated. And so I think in general, we were going to be more mad at a, at a lesser episode oh, back then. Yeah, too. yeah. Right. I mean, and I, I stopped watching the show like live uh, or new episodes rather like three years. I think 2004, 2005 is when I start to get off the train, which is the exact point where i am hitting that level of uh, angsty sexual frustration as well. <laughs> but i i think that's part of uh, being a simpsons fan is mm. is that art but i i do think it's it's another reason why i picked this episode a common complaint is this is when the simpsons falls into this weird transitional period right because a couple years after this although right around this time shortly after south park essentially evolves into becoming we're the topical animated show right like this is this is sort of the most fallow period of South Park after the movie right. when it sort of feels like is this show just going to slowly wane off and then like after 9-11 it kind of comes back strong and then you have shit like the Elian Gonzalez episode where people are like holy shit how did they do that in four days right like that becomes the the competitive advantage of that show is that they can animate it so fast and they're able to come up with takes so quickly especially in a pre-Twitter universe mm -hmm. you know to see something that isn't just SNL doing one sketch or weekend update joke, but to see them write a proper three-act story around a topical thing becomes their advantage. And then I think The Simpsons starts trying to play that game, but they're playing that game on a two-year delay, right? Yeah, no, And that... I think a lot of the episodes... Right, and, and you have things like the boy band episode, which I keep on coming back to, but I do think it's one of the worst episodes of this season and is emblematic of things I don't like about the show at this time, especially because uh, Josie and the Pussycats just runs circles around it three months later, <laughs> but 
But um, I do think shit like that is Simpsons being like, fuck, we have to comment on the trends, right? The episode has to be Bart doing thing that is now popular in the culture or big celebrity guest star comes on episode that's about metrosexuality becoming popular in the town of, of Springfield. I know mm. metrosexuality is specifically a thing that uh, the South Park did instead. But yeah. you know what I'm saying? That it's like we have to talk about the cultural trends, which I think Simpsons has never been particularly good at. And I do think what they're best at is this type of episode, even if this is on the lower end of the execution of it, which is new character changes the worldview of the family slightly but not in a way that forever alters the show, hmm. you know? Yeah, that there's yeah. just like an experience that's going to linger with them a little bit, but it doesn't feel odd that they never acknowledge it ever again. Because at this point, they've run through most of the organic storylines that these characters could arrive at themselves, right? Well, well, I think they were thinking like, if we if we try to get sentimental, just be compared to the other time we got sentimental. Yeah. So we're, yeah. that's just retreaded. Yeah, I mean, we've, we've heard on commentaries, Matt Selman going like, I wish we were as good as South Park sometimes. Like he would... Uh, there was definitely yeah. a spirit of envy in there for sure yeah <laughs> but but i do think like at this point they've done all the obvious organic storylines with the main characters right yeah. they yeah. kind of wrung the simpsons family dry for all the obvious things to do with them and then they've also extended to most of their supporting cast this is the season where you get worst episode ever which is they're like fuck it i guess we have to do emotional storylines about comic book guy right which feels <laughs> like a real turning point where the show is almost like self-aware enough about being like any character is eventually gonna have to be the emotional backbone of an a storyline and we're gonna have to sort of joke about the fact that it's like i guess it's a gill episode now right <laughs> yeah um, well a recent episode this season dealt with comic book guy's origins and him being comfortable being a father that's how oh, far we've 32? taken comic book guy yeah, yeah. 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 right 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 i mean it's like you have this episode uh worst worst episode ever is the agnes skinner episode and and you also have an Edna Krabappel episode, like within a season of this. Like they do, like two comic book guy ends up almost marrying someone he should never marry. Episodes so close together, where it just feels like at this point you're you're kind of pulling elements out of a hat. If you're left between, are you repeating things the characters have already done, or are you just? having the characters react to things that culturally didn't exist five years ago that feels less exciting to me than introduce a new character that will challenge the main family the core family in some new way like put a catfish in the barrel right like jack crowley <laughs> yeah. and let every simpsons family member react to them differently they totally do that with marge and then it feels like they leave all this meat on the bone with everyone else but even watching like skinner's relationship with jack is so much fun yeah, that it makes sure. you wish more of the episode was they are trying to integrate Jack back into society that you're seeing everyone else interact with Jack that it's a little bit more like much a poo about nothing or something mm -hmm. where it's like take a character and put them in a new light and have everyone reassess them yeah, unfortunately, I think it was just a reflex action at this point in Scully's tenure in that uh, they just said, oh, if there's a Marge episode or a release episode, the Homer antics will be the keys that we jingle in front of you to keep you, uh, you know, attend. Oh, 
overcompensate. Yeah. Right. I mean, well, the the Super Bowl episode, I know you guys already called out. Is that this season? When is that? As a, the, uh, the season before. I think it was 10. I do believe it was 10. Okay. Because yeah. that has the joke where it's like, oh, the A plot line is about them going to the Super Bowl and the B plot line is Marge and Lisa on the phone trying to get a replacement part for a craft kit. Yes. Right? Yep. They have acknowledged that they pointedly tried to write the most boring, unexciting, unevent-like plotline for Marge and Lisa, which really feels indicative of their attitude towards those two characters at this point in time. It felt like the the inverse, where it's like, now that Homer has the wacky adventure, we need the most boring thing, which is them looking at old craft kits yeah. in their closet. Right, right after that, the ne- a couple episodes later, well, while Bart and Homer drive uh, a giant truck across country, they're going to buy a doorbell, yes. Lisa and Marge. <laughs> right, right. They just keep doing that where it's like the joke is that Lisa and March suck and their episodes are boring. Yeah. You shouldn't want to watch these, it almost says. And internally, I mean, they had that kind of sentiment because for a long time, if you were a new writer, you would write a March episode because no one else wanted to do it, which is why a lot yeah. of our fa- favorite writers on the show, they started off with writing March episodes. Mind you, why March and Lisa episodes are very often amongst the best, certainly in the first decade of the show, because it, it took more work to come up with them. You can have Homer and Bart do anything, right? Like they're dumb and confident and loud, right? In different ways, but it means they could pretty much adapt to anything, be be pot committed to any wild trend or idea or get rich quick scheme or fad or whatever. And then Marge and Lisa episodes have to be more introspective, have to be more emotionally grounded, have to kind of speak to something a little bit deeper. And I, I think they, pay off better in that way and then i also find that like homer bart stuff tends to be funnier in a good marge or lisa episode i think in this one like homer doing the chiropractic stuff to his friends it's funny enough i mean i like lenny's reaction that he it's now just a a calm numbness on his (laughs) his searing leg pain but yeah the the silly time with homer this could have been in any episode really yeah i i well but though a joke i really do love is homer demanding that the chiropractor recognize the irony of him trying to shut them down like i do i do love yes. that joke yeah uh next yes uh my car seems to have broken down and i was wondering if i could use you oh, that's a pushing motion simpson you're not a licensed chiropractor and you're stealing patients from me and dr steffi boy talk about irony the ama tries to drive you guys out of business now you're doing the same to me Think about the irony. You've been warned. Stop chiropracting. Now that lets you think about the irony. Right after that, Marge, well, Marge looks out the window, realizes she could get him a job at the school because yeah. <laughs> she sees the school right where the prison was. She gets him a job with Skinner, lying about that he was not a convict, saying, like, there's so much ADR in this bit. Like, voices change. I thought it was insane, the joke of Skinner saying the only other person who applied was Mo, And he looks at his drawing, and he's like, who could ever think that was making love? I was like, <laughs> what? This is for a school. What the hell? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, oh. A weird joke and also just once again getting to the point where it feels like you're just picking things out of a hat where it's just like, I'm not going to be a stickler about this shit, but also why would Mo want to do that? There is nothing in 12 seasons of Mo's character that implies he would have any interest (laughs) in doing a mural. 
he has no artistic side in that way. It doesn't speak to... Like, I love the loneliness of Mo, right? And his weird, broken-hearted quality. But I also feel like doing anything like that where he's not the center of attention doesn't really track for that character. Yeah. Usually his big things are about him trying to make himself look better. Mo has a weird presence in this episode in that he is he's at the rodeo. He's the guy who goes, yeah, do that. When yes, he's, yeah. he's going to caramelize his yeah. uh, creme brulee. Yes. And then he is the guy to tell Homer he, it's Cairo town. And then he's like participating in this mural uh, application. Yeah. Mo is oddly sprinkled throughout this episode in a very strange way. <laughs> right. I mean, this is sort of like when you get to the laziest tier of Mo jokes for me, which are just like, he's a creep, right? Yeah. Like yeah. he's yeah. just kind of like a well, I mean, yeah. that making love drawing, you can imagine what could be the worst thing he would draw in that for making love right. or a lot well, of horrible things. Previously yeah. this season, we did have the Mo necrophilia joke where he says, I ain't never said no to a dead girl before. Yeah. And yep. then uh, so That's it's true. implied Mo has sex with corpses. Yep. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> See, I, I just prefer Mo being unrelentingly sad you know like i just like the specificity of just like man this guy's life is bleak over like making him like uh i'm, I'm trying to even think of um he's almost like a quagmire actor. style character no he's very quagmire yeah. at times yeah yeah. Which... yeah it's like half quagmire half charlie from always sunny in philadelphia mm, yeah i see yeah i that's it's much funnier the the bits where he's telling Homer about just how he's he has he had no connection with his father and just saying like you hug the mailman why couldn't you hug me yeah yeah like that's that's a good mo bit for me uh, but uh, but yes Marge gets him the job I do yeah. love Keaton's delivery too on uh, just like um, the third time uh, <laughs> but I feel real good about this one <laughs> I yeah. really I really like how low the stakes are because school spirit is down three point four percent yeah. And all of Skinner's threats, he thinks he's threatening to send the guy back to college. Yeah, that doesn't make any... Oh, that's so good. I... I read in the daily fourth gradient that you need someone to paint a mural. Yeah, school spirit is down 3.4%. Well, Jack here will do great work for you. Oh, any references? Well, I'll be honest with you. I spent the last six years in Waterville State. It's a small liberal arts college. Very law-abiding. No convicts at all. Well, the only other one to apply was Mo Zizlak, and his stuff scares the hell out of me. Ugh. How could anyone consider that making love? All right, Jack, you're hired. I'll clear you out of cubby. You told a lie for me. I know, but the Lord will forgive me if it helps you get a second chance. <sighs> Actually, Marge, it's the third if you count that farm couple. Farm couple? But I got a good feeling about this one, Marge. I really do. Hmm. So then Skinner has to become a character he never is, which is not only a bully to the one guy he should never bully, he's always kowtowing to everybody else. But here he's being mean, jer a jerk to this giant man. And then also he becomes a Fox Network executive. Yes. Yeah. I do like that bit a lot. And in this uh, run, especially like Scully and his crew were really obsessed with the production of television and movies. And there are so many scenes with executives. This is the rise of Lindsay Nagel to the point where in this episode, Skinner becomes a TV executive. Yeah. Sort of in yeah. a way. <laughs> he does. Yeah, so what Skinner does to Jack in this next clip is what many people who have made pilots for TV shows have experienced, which is that you come in with an idea, a producer tells you to do, uh, the executive tells you to do the opposite of that idea or to tone it down and, and sand off the edges, and then when it fails, it, the executive says, why did you do that thing <laughs> and blames you for it? Yeah, you see, I didn't want to go so cutesy-wootsy. 
Because? Because it's not my style. Well, if you want to keep this job, you'll make it your style. All right. You're the boss man, ain't you? Darn right I'm the boss. Don't forget, I can send you back where you came from, college boy. <sighs> Skinner. I had more freedom back at the joint. Jack, I know you hate to betray your artistic vision, but just do it. <laughs> I guess I could bend a little. Just till you make it. Remember, I believe in you. Thanks, Marge. Listen, if you're done with that washing machine, can I make some booze in it? Not until you finish your Sunday. Yes, ma'am. <clears throat> What's wrong with my Sundays? <laughs> Hat trick now in terms of playing the clip with the better delivery of my butchering of one of my favorite jokes in this episode. No, I just, I love, I, I laugh so much. I totally forgot Marge's thing of like, but just do it. Yeah. Like, just, no the, reason. <laughs> just compromise your, your artistic integrity. Yeah. I, I, I will admit I am a sucker for the bit of people use industry talk, entertainment industry talk in non-showbiz settings, it always gets to me, and especially when things are treated with that level of, like, dumb executive notes and shit. Mm. I think just because there always feels like there's some heat on it, because you feel like the writers are making jokes about something that actually irritates them, that it feels, like, cathartic. But I also just, I don't know, maybe I'm just, like, a dumb, easy <laughs> lay for that shit. And when I had a sketch comedy group, I would always try to write in bits where people would, like, note sketches. You know, like, where when sketch-like behavior happened in a sketch, people say, like, I don't know, that feels like a double beat. Like, I'm just such an easy lay for that type of calling out the comedy uh, uh, trope shit. But I, I do like that they also extend it to that uh, moment where Skinner is at the board with... Yes. Um, the cafeteria schedule and they're trying to move it around like it's a network programming schedule i also like that skinner is like this crappy executive who also thinks he's an artist so it's not just that he doesn't want to let jack do his own thing but also he's got this terrible pitch that he's super confident about and then immediately just lets jack take the bullet for it and sell it down the river you can really tell that the writers are still bitter about having been moved to thursdays for five years <laughs> it yeah. still comes yeah. up and they're still mad about about it and a lot of these writers had worked on tv shows that did get moved around so it's definitely personal this story yeah well one well, griffin you talk about that they're they're running out of personal experiences growing up to talk about yeah but they have tons they have continually getting new personal experience of working with uh, executives they don't like so they can it it is fresher and newer for them to to grind those axes which i appreciate. Right. i mean that's the weird thing it's like i think that's a, a far more fruitful well of material for them than when they default into we're making jokes about how annoyed we are with our fans right <laughs> which in a way predicts so much of pop culture where i feel like the simpsons was one of the first shows to have to reckon with fan culture in its text itself mm. both because it last it lasted so long and its fan base was so active online you know worst episode ever is like a joke that's spiting the fans for that you but know by the time their, they, their judgment. yeah by the time they have the episode worst episode ever it's been said in the show for like six years at this <laughs> yeah. point like, right that's the point it's like you're finally titling an episode with the character who went from being a parody of a thing to becoming the mouthpiece for the fans who they resent and he's now hit that joke so many times that the entire episode's about him 
and called that to make fun of the fact that they're they beaten that joke to a dead horse. I also really love the delivery of him saying like I didn't want to go so cutesy wootsy because like <laughs> yeah. Skinner doesn't even understand why he wouldn't want to go that way. Like he's right. he's just lost. I love that. Uh. But here's another thing, and I, I'm repeating myself a lot. He gets hired to do the mural at minute 15. Yes. Yeah. In a 22-minute episode. And this is another example for me of just how overstuffed these stories get, how much they don't trust themselves to let one idea play out on the show, where it feels like now the last seven minutes of the show are going to become more about the frustration of working within a network studio system, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. The, the jack of it gets a little bit lost because you're like, if the episode's about someone gets hired to do a mural and then there are all these notes they have to deal with and then they have to get the criticism for a work that they weren't even proud of. You could have done that plot line with Marge. That would have worked. Nothing about Jack being the one in this position really feels like it's paying off who Jack has been up until this point. Especially because then when he goes violent at the end with arson, none of that's really set up properly. I totally agree. There should have been more things throughout the episode testing his patience, you know, yeah. testing his right. morals. Yeah, he doesn't lose patience with anybody up to this point and Skinner is just enough to break him. And I know they're writing, they at least write Skinner as enough of a dick in this episode that you kind of can see it from his way of like, God, this guy's a jerk. But, but yeah, they also, if they could have, this could have sustained an entire episode the idea of Skinner right. is the network executive who destroys arts. Right. Yes. That And that could have been done with Marge or with any other number of characters. Right. Mm. And then we've already talked about how much you could have done just with Jack lives with the family. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you know, he could get fired from any other job, but it just feels like once again, these seasons start to feel to me like they start using every single thing that came up in the beginning of season brainstorm right well, yeah well, so rather than saying what are the 22 best pitches we got and let's spin them out into their own episodes they go for each episode let's pick five of the things that came up as a one <laughs> sentence log line for what could be a plot line yeah and the, like 10 years of the show has given them so many toys to play with they have the urge to play with all the toys sometimes yeah all at once well and well they don't say this on the commentary but we've seen enough where they admit that they had a third act that th fully was thrown out and they add a new third act to it and i don't know this almost feels tacked on enough that it could be like maybe especially since they set up the whole thing with apu I feel like yeah. the natural yeah. thing would be he'd work with Apu or something new would happen yes. with that. Right, right. I mean, it, it also like another natural thing that it feels like they would have done is he cannot hold down a job. They try to get him hired everywhere. Like, it feels like that's a classic symptom thing. And once again, like taking a new character, Larry Burns style and letting him play off of as many characters as possible. Have him work one day at most. Have him work for a poo. Have him work as a janitor for a day. You know, like, but put him in multiple different environments and make the episode about this guy's struggle to reacclimate to to the world outside of mm. prison. Mm. Uh, real quick, they do end the chiropractor thing with the uh, after Mo is cured, they then Homer's spino cylinder stolen by chiropractors and smashed up with spines, which I'll give it to the animators too. Bob Anderson and his team, they were told to draw people with swinging spines, smashing a trash can and they pulled it they off. They did it. They did it. <laughs> In the yeah, back yeah. of a pickup truck. In the back, yes, yeah, that gets pa uh, But God, that Cairo town doesn't really sound like sound like Chinatown. Like it's not even that much of a mnemonic pun. I I no, don't know. 
that's a sweaty joke. And it's also this thing where I know part of the whole thing is that nothing is going to be held over from episode to episode, right? Mm. But as, as I've said before, I do like Simpsons episode where it feels like this is going to linger with them even if it's never mentioned again versus this era where I feel like episodes pointedly end with characters shrugging and saying, well, that was stupid to spend a week on this. <laughs> yes. You know, like it feels yeah. like by the end of the episode, the characters bail out the idea that they ever thought this would be a good idea for an episode. They just go like, well, whatever like yeah in this one it's just them literally like walking away from it and maybe i could see the pitch being like well if we're just gonna have the characters walk away and they've learned nothing can we at least make it a reference to saying forget it it's chinatown right that and that's the other thing is like if we can't find a way to end this in any way that is emotional or genuinely good comedic payoff what thing can we reference right Mm. can we at least just make it an homage to a thing for five seconds so that functions (laughs) like a joke uh so then we head to skinner's speech as he's uh, about to premiere the drawing i i just have a small clip here of bruce valanche's ca- cameo here you know when superintendent chalmers suggested a school mural i almost thought he said a school muriel <laughs> muriel's his sister and uh <laughs> oh thank you bruce valanche whoopee would have made it work And now I present Puma Pride by a college-educated artist, (laughs) Jack Crowley. Uh, A case in point, perfect example of the kind of dumb comedy world joke that I always go for, no matter how lazy it is. People hiring Bruce Bruce Valanche to do (laughs) punch-up who are not comedians, always funny to me. I, I do love it. I, I will say as a heavier gay man who wears glasses. Uh, Your hair should be wilder, Henry. I know. I don't let it get wild enough. And uh, and who also <laughs> likes to wear funny t-shirts. I mm. I have looked to Bruce Valanche of like, I could be that when I grow up. I, I mean, is Bruce Valanche an easy joke about like, oh, that's, the, that's a hacky old comedy. Like Bruce Valanche wouldn't have pitched that joke. Like, sure. But I do still kind of like the guy. Like this was when he... I, I had- yeah. I, I love Valanche. And the fact that he showed up to do it shows you that Bruce Valanche is very aware of his reputation mm-hmm. and kind of even owns it. And I do like that the joke gives him the power in a way to say, like, I mean, I usually write for Whoopi Goldberg. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Well, because he was just doing Hollywood Squares at this time. Whoopi's Hollywood Squares. And and there was the Get Bruce documentary in 1999 that I think made a lot of people outside of Hollywood aware of him. Like he'd been writing the Oscars for like 15, 20 years at that point and and a million other things, too. But he, he definitely becomes a little more front facing at this point. Like he's on Hollywood Squares a lot himself at this time he does hairspray on broadway a couple years after this oh, yeah, yeah you know like he he starts to be a little more known but i just it's it's a it's a lazy fucking comedy go-to <laughs> i cannot tell you how many times i have made the joke about Ugh, valanche wrote this you know <laughs> and also writer of the star wars holiday special and i say yeah, that's right put that on disney plus yeah. we've all seen it we want the pristine version yeah. of it just, just give it to just us just do it we'll pay for yeah. it yeah that's the snyder cut equivalent that disney plus needs totally totally yeah <sighs> Yes, I always forget that he is also the writer of of the Star Wars Holiday Special. One of his first things well, he ever did. Yeah, one of many, not the sole writer. But right. I do think we had him on the George Lucas talk show, which is this uh, comedy live stream that I'm a part of. 
mm-hmm. when we were uh, we did our Life Day special last year for the 2020 holiday season, and we had him on to talk about uh, the Star Wars holiday special. And I do think he took credit for the B. Arthur segment most of all. Which That's is the best. Far yeah. away, the best. Yeah, I mean, if you're excluding the the animated segment, which is the one thing they are officially putting up on Disney Plus, but removed. Uh, from the special at large that's the best and when he started saying other things that he wrote i was like you're citing all the things that are the most comedically successful in the show (laughs) it's Uh, not like he wrote the diane carroll segment it's not like he wrote the 15 minutes of the wookies grunting without subtitles he wrote the (laughs) shit that's kind of funny like he wrote the harvey corman shit and the b arthur shit i I am shocked to find out bruce valanche wrote the cabaret scene (laughs) from the the holiday special i I can't believe it it's a great song (laughs) She, she sells it. That's genuinely a good song. Yes, it is a great song. I and B. Arthur rules. Like she's amazing. Yeah. Like, uh, but and there's there's a weird level of pathos to that performance. <laughs> she's so tender with all she's those. She's shutting down mutants. Moss Eisley's cantina for the day. Yeah. She's like, come on, guys, we'll see you tomorrow. Like, yeah, yeah. So I, I've I've come around to the idea that she might be one of my ten favorite characters in all of Star Wars. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> uh, but yeah, you're right. Bruce Valanche is having fun with the idea of Bruce Valanche. He's like, I'm going to show up. Yes, Bruce Valanche wrote this because it was a bad joke that didn't go over. <laughs> and also the gun cocking sound on it is great, too. So so, yeah. so they reveal the mural. It's completely changed. Everybody thinks it sucks. It also feels like there's a missing beat that, like, everybody just leaves. They're like, well, that's kind of sugary. And everyone's gone. They're like, well, I feel like there should be an extra bit of people saying, like, let's get out of here. There should be more uh, commentary, I guess, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, but I do like Skinner instantly throwing him. You're at yeah. like minute 19 at this point. It's true. They have almost no time for... The, in the next minute, they have to have Marge think he's guilty, then yeah. think he's not guilty, and then learn he is guilty. Yeah. And I love right. Skinner's it's- comment, where's the edge? Yes. Yeah. This is yeah. what I wanted. Which, once again, like a, a, a dead-on network telling you to sand off all the edges and then complaining that your thing is toothless. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I also love how much it hurts him for Marge to say, like, but years from now, people will point to these cuddly little creatures and say, that's a Jack Crowley. Because there are these creators who have to go, like, perhaps say Al Jean on Teen Angel. That if you yeah. were to say, Teen Angel's Al Jean, he'd be like, how dare you? I had to do that for TGIF. Uh. Right. The idea that, like, if anything, having these things become successful and beloved is cause for even more resentment. Because then you're being associated <laughs> with a thing that is like a compromised point of frustration for you. And uh, yes, then comes the next scene of Skinner planning out the schedule, which as I wasn't as plugged into media then, but when I first saw it, I could at least remember like, oh, there was a scene like this in uh, Late Shift that- uh, Sure. <laughs> and Murphy Brown, they were always in this room with oh, this big schedule on the wall. Yeah, you're right. I remember that Paul Rubens, Murphy Brown, where it's all about like, he's helping CBS. Gary Marshall's Gary the Marshall, CBS exec yeah. and he's planning it all out. You're right. Oh, that was good. An important moment lunch lady doris is about to speak before millhouse comes in she raises a finger and opens her mouth (laughs) but she's doris growl has been dead for five years and lunch lady dora does not exist yet so i love that bit too like you said that about the stuffed peppers and then you lost the young males right i I, once again just uh, funny to me funny to me anything outside of the entertainment industry treated like it is show business because show business is stupid (laughs) and the seriousness with which people talk about it is worthy of lampooning. Well, uh, pizza's working well on Thursday, but I think the kids will follow it to Tuesday. 
That's what you said about the stuffed peppers, and you lost the young males. Principal Skinner, the school's on fire. <gasps> it's crystal clear who did this. Jack Crowley. No way. You don't know that Jack did this. Just because he's an ex-con. <gasps> Crowley's an ex-con? Dear Lord, I peed in front of him. Hey, check it out. A mural. It's so passionate, it almost leaps off the wall. Oh. That felon could have torched the whole school were it not stuffed with asbestos. We'll catch Crowley, and then he'll learn the fine art of police brutality. Uh, and so Marge reveals that uh, as the fire spreads, the kids are chanting spread, which I had to go to Frankie Act to be like, oh, that's what they're saying. I had no idea what they were saying. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and that's when Marge reveals that Crowley was actually a convict. And uh, Skinner's like, dear Lord, I peed in front of him. That's, that's an all right joke. Uh, well, once again, when you get to like, he's been framed for someone else's crime. No, he hasn't. He was lying. Marge has to forgive him and move on. All within the span of one minute. It's just like none of this matters like none of this is given any space to land with any way dramatically or comedically yeah, yeah. it's all it's all racing to an end yeah actually right. I, I have the full last minute of the episode which it, it shows you how quick it all goes here uh, in, in our last clip i admit i hate skinner but i didn't start that fire then why are you hiding come on marge with my rap sheet they can't wait to send me back to prison you can't believe the foul language in that place. <laughs> so you really didn't do it? Marge, look in my eyes. I swear to you, I did not do it. I believe you, Jack. Now let's get you out of here. Wait for my signal. Oh, Chief, I found some evidence that points to the real arsonist. Well, let's see it. Not yet. You have to guess what it is. We don't have time for guessing games. Nah, let's try it. It might be fun. Is it DNA? Mm. So it's like DNA. Um, a hatchet? You had a turn. I want to guess. Oh, jeez. <laughs> My car! <laughs> Boomer Pride! Boomer Pride! <laughs> Catch the fever, Skinner! <laughs> It is kind of out of nowhere that he just goes crazy and yeah. just is cackling, yes. <laughs> it, it has not been his character at all. And also it feels like that moment where he pleads with March to believe him is like parodying sincerity, right? Mm. It's like making fun of when these episodes used to actually be based around emotional connections with fleeting characters. Uh, the way the Klausen music swells and how quickly they move on from it. And it's like, that's another thing this episode could have been about is ex-convict, Marge is trying to convince everyone to give him a chance. Crimes start happening around town. Everyone blames him. And he has to convince Marge to believe him and to fight to prove to everyone that he didn't do it. And you can still end that episode with, it was him, you know, he was manipulating Marge. But when it all happens so fast, it's just like, what's the point? Like, yeah. at this point. And uh, I think it's a very funny episode, but it's a Marge episode. She gets no time to reflect on this. Am I true, too trusting of people? Is Jack really a nice person? Right. She just like, get Jack out of this show. Yeah, Let's end like, the episode. Done with this. You lied to my face. Get him out of here. Yeah. <laughs> 
like, I like, as I said, the episodes that leave the central characters with some sort of lingering thought, not a lesson, because I, you know, I think The Simpsons also fails when it tries to be too pat in that kind of way, the rare times they do, but more like, you know, they've, they've explored a gray area, right? Mm-hmm instead marge is like you're a crumb bum get out of here you lied to my face yeah Yeah. uh she she's learned nothing she didn't even think his art was that uh in the end she's like you know what your art doesn't even matter to me i don't care right which was what drew her to him in the first place and it does feel like of this era the cynicism of this era in comedy writing where it's like no one is redeemable no one learns lessons no Mm -hmm. one is truly good you're you're a fool for thinking this man could have been rehabilitated the end right but I guess they needed to speed it up to get in. I mean, I do like hearing Keaton and Hank Azaria just goof around, mainly talking about HBO and how he can't watch HBO. Yeah, it's a real yeah. it's a real snapshot of HBO in the year 2002. Mm-hmm. But it's another way in which it makes me wish this episode was less overstuffed, less overstuffed and and hurried because you're like man imagine if there was more air to allow keaton riffs to remain in the episode you know mm-hmm. yeah they instead have to just tag it on at the end they're like well here's a scene of just wiggum wiggum talking with a guy which is not i i would doubt was on the page in there in there <laughs> I'm sure, but I'm sure he also did this for every scene. You know, it's something like Julie Kavner never really gets to play around much with another actor. Like the, yeah. you, you get a little bit of that in the Jacques episode in season one, but I would really like to hear her playing with Keaton. And it could be that like, it could also just be Keaton only had Azaria around that day that he could be with. They might not have been other people uh, in person the day that Keaton was available. Who knows? But I just, if I know anything about Keaton, it's that he gives people a lot of material to choose from. He tries different things every take and he improvises a lot, you know? Yeah. And so it's like unsurprising that they're left with this sort of like bonus little gift at the end of an episode, but it makes me immediately sad for thinking about how much they must have thrown out. (laughs) I, I do like the bit of just everybody was talking oz jokes i love the show oz yeah but oz jokes were the go-to at the time and just like oh it's like on oz and i just like that his character just throws it out like well i can't watch it. i i don't know is it is this like oz like that's that's clever i like that. and it's uh, the chief of police asking about prison and what's it like yes, yes also yeah. that yeah. he yeah. should know pretty well you're yeah. right but I guess this is also when like HBO is taking over all the Emmy Awards, so it just yeah. became a thing of j- to joke about on TV that it's mm-hmm. all characters are watching. Even your fictional characters are watching HBO now, not not network. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You crumbum! You look me right in the eye and lied to me. Marge, this is the God's truth. I burned the mural, but I did not burn Skinner's car. I just saw you. Get him out of here, Chief. Yes, ma'am. My wife and I like watching that Oz show on HBO. Uh, is prison really like that? Wouldn't know. We only get basic cable. Ouch. Yeah, I also like that sex in the city. <laughs> None of those girls look like my wife. <laughs> Sports Center's not bad. Yeah, I never got that show. What's to get? They just tell the scores. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah. Hey, you ever meet any mob guys? Uh, are they really like the Sopranos? I told you, we just get basic cable. Oh, right, right, right. Listen, if I'm getting too chatty, just uh, just tell me to shut up. Nah, I'm enjoying it. Hey, have you ever watched them strongman contests? They're pretty good. Those guys look strong. A lot of guys in prison say they're gay, but I don't know. They look strong to me. 
it's it's just so weird that in the end it's like convicts are not to be trusted not worthy of sympathy they lie to your face and destroy property it's like that uh, not the best moral to the story if they want but they don't really give a shit about that they once again i yeah i don't care about morals i wish at least if this is what they wanted to do it would have been more of an episode about marge trusting people too much which it isn't Mm -hmm. that's an afterthought you know it could be an episode about marge always invests too much faith in the inherent good of people yeah it it ends up not really being about anything (laughs) yeah i feel like i mean there's like nothing pointed about this episode other than chiropractors (laughs) are are kind of shady and competitive we've talked about it throughout our discussion here but i feel like at this point they were losing confidence in just telling a march story so they wanted to distract you with other things but i feel like gene uh he had different issues with his seasons but i feel like he was more confident in just telling marge and lisa stories without wanting to distract you with other zanier Mm. things yeah Yeah. well griffin you're also right they had they have more systemic criticisms of chiropractory than they do of parole or prisons or the the criminal justice system none of that for for a show that has overall been very very critical of those institutions since the beginning of law enforcement of the law of the prison industrial complex i mean these are things i've been dealing with the whole time it's weird for them to do an episode about it that's so toothless but also the chiropractic stuff feels fairly too as well i mean it's really just one beat at the end where the guys come in and like you know intimidate homer and steal the thing and beat it up with a spine mm. but like <laughs> it feels like like they could have gone further with that as well it, it's pretty easy shots all around mm-hmm. i guess my final thoughts on <laughs> it like it it's a funny there are funny jokes in this episode the but uh, yeah i think they had we've teased out that there's like five different episodes they could have pulled out of this but they just squished it so much together but at least when things are funny they they are there's some good comedy and keaton is in a time when a lot of guest stars are already starting to be like i'm me the famous person like he <laughs> plays a real character who actually has a lot of fun with him. And I, I cannot believe in 20 plus years since his episode, he yeah. never came back. He would have been such a great second guest appearance. I, I have to imagine they're going to bring him back soon. It feels like, especially with the career resurgence he's been in, I wouldn't be surprised if we hear him popping up in the next couple seasons. I, I'm shocked post Birdman, he didn't already come back, you know, honestly. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there what, were three different episodes parodying Birdman. I mean, there must be... <laughs> <laughs> one episode where the title parodies Birdman, one episode where the plot line parodies Birdman, and one episode that's all faked one shot like Birdman. And if those three <laughs> things haven't happened, I'm sure they will. Mm-hmm. And my final thoughts are, it was not remarked upon, but I love the title Pokemon, and yes. I'm a big video game fan, so yeah. I think it's very yeah. clever. And a Pokey <laughs> is a jail. That's clever. Yeah, it's, a, it's a fun title. <laughs> uh, but I guess, a- any last thoughts yourself, Griffin? No, I mean, it's, it's just like, it's, it's not my favorite episode. It's not my least favorite episode. But, you know, from the list of season 12 stuff, I was drawn to it because of the Keaton and because it is interesting to me and how much it has on paper all of the elements of one of my favorite Simpsons episodes and leaves a lot of them on the table. Mm-hmm. Leaves a lot of stuff, I feel like, unrealized or unfulfilled. But it, it very much represents this exact moment 
in in the series uh, run for me. Well, Griffin, our fans love podcast girth, and this could be one of our girthier episodes <laughs> <Yeah>. today. <laughs> uh, yes, yes. Thank you so Apologize much for, for that. No, oh, no, no, no. We feel yes. bad that we took so much of your afternoon. No, but... I feel great about. It. We made a three-hour episode about Pokemon. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'm excited. Uh, I mean, everybody heard it at the front, but Griffin. I mean, uh, where where can folks find all of your awesome stuff? I I didn't even mention at the start the George Lucas talk show. Yeah, uh, so George Lucas talk show is a show I do with Connor Ratliff, who's an amazing uh, improviser here in New York City, one of the finest people on the planet for my money. And uh, he plays George Lucas. I play Watto, the uh, <laughs> uh, Toydarian uh, junk shop owner from Phantom Menace and Attack of the Clones. And we interview uh, real celebrities as themselves. Uh, we we had Bill Oakley on recently. I'm trying to think of other Simpsons oh, people we've had. On Christy Nangle, who's a current writer for the show. Oh, that's great. Um, yeah, but um, we've had we've had some Simpsons people on, and certainly no shortage of Simpsons talk. But uh, we do that every week. Uh, people like Whoopi Goldberg, people like Bruce Valanche, people who came up in this episode. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. We interview them in characters every Sunday night, 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on, or Eastern Time, I should say, on uh, Planet Scum dot Live, and then uh, Blank Check wherever podcasts are found. That's awesome. Yeah, and you you are Patreon supported as well now. You're you're I think uh, exclusively on Patreon or exclusively Patreon supported now, right? Uh no, no, no. No, we have uh, our uh, we're independent, but uh ads on our main feed and right. then on Patreon we do um a separate show which is we do franchise commentaries and then weird sort of one-off bonus episodes that sometimes relate to the the director filmography uh, miniseries we're doing on the main feed. Oh, that's awesome. Well, man, we'd, we'd yeah. love to have you back anytime, Griffin. That was so, so much fun. Uh, yeah, I need to watch another, uh, the <laughs> remaining 11 seasons of the show. Uh, and then I'll, I'll be reloaded with hot takes for another three-hour episode. We'll be ready for you. Yes, cool. for sure. Oh, thank you so much again, Griffin. My pleasure. So thank you so much to Griffin Newman. What a great Woo, guest. So much fun. And a very long podcast, but we're all about being a very long podcast. So <laughs> no shame there. But please check out Blank Trek. It is a really great podcast. I recommend jumping in with the Back to the future episodes but i like back to the future mm -hmm. and also there's the george lucas talk show which we brought up in the end of the podcast so yes thank you so much to griffin you can follow him at griff lightning g-r-i-f-f lightning if you enjoyed him on the show please tell him you did uh we really appreciate it as for us if you want to check out more of our show and get all these episodes one week ahead of time and ad free please go to patreon.com slash talking simpsons sign up for five bucks a month to get just that but also access to everything behind the five dollar paywall and if you're not behind the five dollar paywall you just missed season two part one of talking of the hill our king of the hill retrospective we do the same kind of attention and clips like we do talking simpsons and that was our most recent miniseries and there will be one coming up in the fall of 2021 and we've done several in the four years we've been doing the Patreon now and the second you sign up you get access to everything we've done since the summer of 2017 that is a lot of podcasts all waiting for you behind the $5 paywall at patreon.com slash talking simpsons and there is also a $10 level if you sign up for that you get all the $5 stuff but also access to one mega long podcast once a month only for patrons of that level or higher and what is that Henry? That's right Bob you're talking about the what a cartoon movie podcast if you like hearing talk about movies on podcasts why that's what me and bob do once a month we talk about an animated feature film super in depth often for over four hours about films as diverse as shrek ducktales the movie the end of evangelion and a gigantic back catalog of over two years we're coming in on our third year honestly in a few months that's how many over 120 hours of premium podcasts that you would get at the ten dollar level in addition to all of the $5 stuff Bob just listed, 
that is a real bang for your buck at patreon.com slash talking simpsons so please consider that today so as for me i've been one of your hosts bob Mackey. you can find me on twitter as bob servo and my other podcast is retronauts that's a classic gaming podcast about old video games find that wherever you find podcasts or go to patreon.com slash retronauts sign up there for two exclusive full-length episodes every month again that is patreon.com slash retronauts henry what about you hey i'm henry gilbert please follow me on twitter at h-e-n-e-r-e-y-g i'm full of hot takes on there and if you're following things on twitter the official twitter account of this podcast is at talk simpsons pod when new podcasts go up for talking simpsons our sister podcast what a cartoon our many mini series on the patreon or tons of other things you will know when they happen if you follow at talk simpsons pod on twitter so please please do that today thanks for joining us everyone we'll see you next time for season two's one fish two fish blowfish bluefish and we'll see you then doesn't suck. Dear Lord, what are you doing? You don't like it? No, no, it's all wrong. The shapely female form has no place in art. But uh, what I thought is... I sketched out exactly what I wanted. Yeah, I know, but see what I was going for here. Did you even look at the napkin? Oh, I was in the zone that day.